Welcome to the Tea Migos podcast, the show where we talk about life while enjoying tea. Today, I talked with Jay Feldman. Jay is a health coach and independent health researcher with the goal of providing you with the tools you need to get your energy back. Jay and I discussed all about health and our diets. We dove deep into fasting and the pros and cons of it, what actually constitutes a healthy food, the myth of losing weight equals tracking calories in versus calories out, tea health, and so much more. Discover Jay's work at jfeldmanwellness.com. That's J-A-Y-F-E-L-D-M-A-N wellness.com. Or on Instagram at jfwellness. That's the letter J-F wellness. Or check out his podcast, The Energy Balance Podcast, and enjoy the show. Jay Feldman, welcome to the Team Eagles podcast. How are you doing? Thanks, Vince. Thanks for having me. I'm doing. I'm doing really well. Excited to be I here. No, it's dude. Like you, like we were just briefly saying, it's been possibly since high school. Um, <laughs> Maybe yeah. <laughs> since we've seen each other, and I mean, it's via via Zoom, FaceTime, Squadcast, you know, like via the computer, but. It's still nice to actually get to talk to you because you're currently in Costa Rica. Is that correct? Yeah, it's correct. I'm out here in Costa Rica. And yeah, it's it's funny how, I don't know, I mean, that's like, what, eight years ago now, at least, something like right? that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm not even, I don't even think about that really much anymore. But yeah, at least eight years ago, pushing 10 years. So <laughs> wild, things changed, like you said. So what brought you out to Costa Rica? How did that yeah, so happen? That, yeah, it's it's a little recent so we've been here for two months my girlfriend and i and uh we'll be in costa rica for another four um bouncing around a little bit just two different locations and then after that we're continuing to travel south so we just i mean there's a couple of things that kind of led up to it one was the capability just as far as working remotely and everything shifting toward more online and that kind of gave us some freedom in that regard and it was always something we wanted to do and and it's not like there was much that we could do in the states everything was kind of you know things were getting locked down and mm-hmm. you know the last how the last year has been so that it was you know it was, you know that was the best time you know the best time we could you know like as good a time as any and mm-hmm. uh yeah so the plan is to be traveling through central and south america and exploring a little bit enjoying ourselves maybe maybe finding some place that we want to stay long term somewhere we want to live for a while yeah what drew you to like the central south america location yeah a, a couple of logistical things which is just similar time zones as the states it's not too far mm. yeah. uh, which is nice also spanish is easier than i mean it, we, i'm a little familiar I man i took spanish in high school and yeah uh, so it's still been a while but uh everyone speaks the same language it's not like if we were to explore eastern asia or something there's a bunch of different languages and they're way farther from english so that would yeah. have been tough not that we never want to go over there um and we we're just a little you know drawn to the culture the the climate uh not just i mean i was coming from florida so we were in the warmth but one thing that we're interested in long-term is self-sustainability having some land and homesteading or a small farm or something like that and this is like this area central and south america is really great for that uh so that's a few of the things yeah oh that's cool i've heard costa rica 
kind of has a diverse climate and like you can kind of experience because there's mountains there right basically i'm more or less in the mountains now like i think about as high as it goes other than monteverde which is a little bit uh higher up there but it's not too high here it's maybe 2500 feet it's cooler though than the beach considerably there's a lot of wind and it's you know you're not getting into the 90s it's not really humid uh, which is nice nice yeah (laughs) yeah when we uh and then obviously most of the rest of it is pretty tropical and beachy and hot and humid. Um, but when we head further south to uh, like Ecuador, for example, we're going to be way up in the mountains there, you know, 9,000 feet. Um, that's actually next up on our next stop after Costa Rica. So Nice. What's the timeline kind of looking like for that? Uh, so the, the plan is six months in each, each country, nice. three months in, in a different spot in, within the country. So Okay. It's not, you know, we're not like backpacking through and staying at a different spot every day or week or month. We want to yeah. kind of get settled in, uh, really feel out the area. And also we're both working. Uh, and so I you know, can't handle a, something where we're really just traveling uh, and not settling in very much. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like slow traveling. So we'll be four months more in Costa Rica, six months total. And then we'll be doing six months in Ecuador and then probably Peru after that, but it's not fully planned out. And then we're just going to go from there. That's awesome. Uh, it's so cool. It's something that I've been kind of toying with the idea for now a couple years. And I had plans in 2020, like in 2019, I was kind of planning to, after my lease was up to kind of do something similar, whereas pick up and just go somewhere. I, I didn't have it that planned out. Um, but 2020 took a turn and mm-hmm. kind of halted all of those plans because international travel really wasn't too big of a thing at that time. And I was like, eh, you know, maybe it's just not the not the right time. So it's definitely still on my list. And I mean, 2022 is looking looking a little different and looking a little hopeful for that. But it's nice. super cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, so, and, and I'm you know definitely happy to offer any tips or anything at that point. We'll have had a couple of years under or at least over a year under our belt so yeah, yeah. I'd, as of right now i highly recommend it it's been really smooth and easy and basically everything we could have hoped for for the most part i mean small hiccups always but really mm-hmm. really pretty good yeah and when did you move to florida i didn't know that you were you were there beforehand yeah so right after high school i went to school uh, at the university of miami mm. and so i was there for four years and then moved to tampa after that so i was in tampa for four years after nice yeah it's a it's tough when you're from the midwest and then you move to somewhere so nice i'm sure i haven't experienced that i've been midwest pretty much my whole life now um as you can see i went to iowa and then up here in minneapolis now and yeah i would love to like that's one of the other reasons of why i want to travel is there's life outside the midwest even though it's beautiful here and i get the four seasons and there's those perks there's you can get that elsewhere too yeah and i love the midwest i mean miami was a little much for us uh, you know tampa was kind of an in-between not just physically location wise but also just the feel of it uh mm-hmm. but yeah i get that I'd, yeah I'd, yeah i totally yeah. get it <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah for sure so all right so i know typically we drink some tea on this podcast and you were saying it's kind of tough to find some some good tea um or high quality tea down where you're at right is that something you haven't been able to find yeah yeah they have like the standard tea bags in the store um mm-hmm. like in a box it's there aren't so in the area we're in uh there's no organic stores or mm. um 
anything like that. So some of the other areas in Costa Rica there are, but yeah, no, no great tea around here. Um, yeah. so I would yeah. maybe drink coffee, but I already had some today and I don't normally have much after the first. Yeah, probably. And at what time is it there? Is it same time zone? Is it one o'clock or it's 12, 15 an hour. 12, hour 15. Okay. So it's yeah. a, so it's a little behind. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's for me. I mean, I can drink now green, I'm drinking green tea right now. I can drink green tea pretty much up until bed at this point, like depending, not, not like matcha, Matcha is one of those higher caffeinated ones, but yeah, I can, I can understand the coffee, the coffee kick. And you might be canceled if you're coming on a tea podcast with a, with a <laughs> cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, I'll advocate for coffee. I'm, I'm a fan. I'd like tea too, of course, but uh, yeah. and I, I, you know, I'm actually fine with coffee later in the day as well. Like as far as sleep goes, sometimes mm. it'll even help, um, help me go to sleep if it's, if I have it in the evening, but mm, today I just wasn't really wanting it. I just finished, what? you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm interested. So why? Why would that help you go to sleep? Because that's literally everything I've heard is not that and experience. Yeah. So I used to struggle with some caffeine tolerance as well, Mm -hmm. even with weak coffee for a while, uh, where I would be using it for the rush and for, you know, you kind of get the jitters and, and I kind of wanted that, you know, I would use it before my workouts or something. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think normally what's going on there is basically caffeine is stimulatory, pretty stimulatory. And uh, in that way, it's kind of like pressing on the gas pedal a little bit and revving the engine. And when there's not enough fuel there, it causes some some stress. Kind of, you know, anytime we have a lack of energy at an immediate time, it causes some stress in our bodies. It raises our stress mm. hormones. So we know exercise, for example, if we're like running, that's going to increase our stress hormones for that time. And that's because we're using a lot of energy and we don't have much enough available at the time. So we have to kick in these stress hormones. And so caffeine will have the same effect if there isn't enough fuel in the tank. And that doesn't necessarily mean just eating enough food. Sometimes like certain types of foods will work better than others, certain combinations. But a lot of times when people are having that jittery, like stress effect from caffeine, it's because there isn't enough energy available to handle that stimulation. But I think when you're able to handle that stimulation, there's actually a lot of benefits from it. It should be a little more calming. And there's some interesting research too, like looking at the effects of caffeine on the stress hormones and seeing, for one, a lot of people just uh, develop a tolerance where after having it for a few days, a week, um, most people will no longer have the same stress effects from it. Uh, they'll note that physiologically, but yeah, some people still tend to have like have trouble tolerating it, which I did for a while, but now, um, I, I'm able to have it without that issue. And, and to the point where it does sometimes really help calm me down and, uh, I can have before, before bed. Sometimes it helps, like helps me sleep or I'll feel really tired after. Yeah. 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 That's, that's really interesting. Cause like I said, I think the general stigma of coffee is it's, it doesn't do that. It doesn't help that calm or produce that calming effect. And I, like I said, from personal experience, that's kind of how I've seen it as well. Um, now, when you say talk about like the energy combo like with the coffee, is that something like like the bulletproof type coffee where you add like fat to it or like butter or something like that? Is that something that you kind of do or no? Um, to an extent, I mean, I think having some fat on board is helpful, but Typically, when we're 
you know, typically we've got two main fuels that our bodies are using, which is either carbs or fats. And when we aren't using the carbs in order to shift toward that fat metabolism, it tends to coincide, it tends to correlate with the stress hormones. So another way of saying that is if we're in that kind of fat burning state, we also tend to be more in that stress hormone state. And mm. so I would actually say if you're not like the fat can be helpful, but if you're not having enough carbs with the coffee, that's going to be more like more important for keeping the, the stress hormones down. Interesting. And like preventing okay. that effect. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Cause so I, I think from what I've looked at on your, on your site and just your Instagram and your podcast and everything, you are maybe not fully against fasting, but like you don't see it as a, as that great of a tool. Is that correct? Yeah. And, uh, yes. I mean, I think there are certain benefits from it for sure. Uh -huh. And it's more of a question of, from my view, it's more of a question of, I think there are harms as well to fasting. So mm -hmm. are there ways to get those benefits without the harmful effects? And I would say that mm -hmm. there are. So considering that, I would say there's better options than fasting to get those same benefits. And I guess we should clarify what fasting is exactly because there's different styles of fasting um i guess when you talk about fasting what do you kind of how do you see it so in essence i mean fasting is just not eating and yeah everybody does it at least when they're asleep right everyone does at least an eight hour fast hopefully mm -hmm. you know around eight hours when they're asleep yeah uh and then a lot of people and as a health modality are using intermittent fasting where they're doing a period of fasting every day. So what they might do is a total of 16 hours fasting, which could include sleeping. And they might only eat for eight hours of the day. They might only have an eight hour window where they squeeze two or three meals in. Uh, some people will do longer fasts as well. They might fast for one day out of the week or a couple days out of a month or a week at a time. Um, some people will do water fasts where you only drink water for that those couple of days. Uh, there's a lot of variations, but I think, and there's there are differences between them. But for the most part, I think the benefits are parallel just to what extent are they occurring and mm. the harms are parallel as well. And again, to what extent are they occurring? And I don't know if you want me to dig into it now, but I think that there's a cost to not eating, um, to putting yourself mm. in, in that kind of state. So, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, we can, we're, we're talking about it, so we may as well jump into it, but cause I've had. I kind of got on the fasting kick back in senior year of college. Um, okay. My roommate, he got super into it. I thought it was ridiculous and stupid. And then I tried it. And at first I did, I wasn't all about it. But then like my body kind of got used to not eating for like until like noon, one o'clock. And so I kind of got used to that. And then I was like, all right, well, I can instead of having to worry about grabbing a meal, I'm just pretty productive during these times. But depending on what I would eat to break the fast could be just terrorize my afternoon. Like I was like, <laughs> okay, just completely crash me and, and just make me feel terrible. Um, but if I did it, quote unquote, right for my body, like kind of stayed eased back into um, intaking like glucose or anything, I would feel better. So I stick with like high fat, like for to break my fast and then ease back into some carbs and then stopped eating like later in the, in the afternoon. But I recently changed and started and kind of went back to, um, eating normally, quote unquote, normally, like, so throughout mm -hmm. the day, 
mostly because like you've mentioned, like when you're not eating, you're putting your body under stress. And I had a surgery on my knee and I was like, okay, I'm already, my body's under stress just from having surgery. I don't need to be putting it under more stress. Like let's fuel it so it can heal up, do, do its thing for my knee. Mm -hmm. And then, well, maybe we'll, we'll go back to the fasting after that. And then I just realized I felt great. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> I, I feel good eating all day and like eating like a, a good healthy breakfast, like full of like eggs. I do. I love bone broth. I don't know mm -hmm. your thoughts on that, but just diving into like those, those types, just a small, but like sustainable, like sourdough bread and something like that. And it's really, really felt great throughout the, throughout the day. So, but kind of like what you said. So if you want to dig into the fasting stuff, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. And so I have my own experiences with fasting too. I was uh, a little early, so maybe like sophomore year of college. Um, okay. I, I was doing some low carbs, some keto, and mm -hmm. some fasting at that point. And it was just intermittent fasting. I didn't do anything longer than that. So it sounds like kind of what you were doing, just yeah. basically skipping breakfast and having a, a relatively late lunch. Yeah, yeah. And it was, I mean, for me, it was fine at the time. I think I kind of ended up with a similar experience to you where, at least for me, I was hoping for a reason not to subconsciously. I was not aware of it at the time. I was very, at the time, like very convinced that that was the healthiest thing. Yeah. Um, but then once I came across some information suggesting otherwise and ended up trying, you know, going without it, I felt a lot better. And, you know, I felt, I felt a lot less controlled by food, which is interesting because mm. One thing that a lot of people say when they're fasting is you don't have to worry about eating. It's like you can just live your life and food doesn't matter so much. But, and I don't know if this is everyone's feeling, but for me, I just ended up thinking, like always looking forward to that meal, always checking the mm -hmm. clock for when I got to break my fast. And then every point after that, I was the same way. I can never really recover for it and feel comfortable from it and feel comfortable. I was always just waiting till I was allowed to have my next meal throughout the whole afternoon and, and evening. And, um, and I also felt like my workout suffered a little bit and uh, mm. maybe some focus and things as well. So that was part of what led me away from it. But from the, like the physiological side, like what's going on in our bodies, why would it be beneficial? Why might it be harmful or what's the cost to it? Yeah. We, we know that what we're basically doing when we're fasting is mimicking starvation on a short term, like small scale. Yeah. Right? We're not starving for a month or something, although some people do some crazy fasts, but yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and to be fair also, I think there can be a lot of spiritual and psychological benefits as well. And I know some people do it for religious reasons. And so this is not really, yeah, we're not talking much. Yeah. About that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. So the, that short term starvation triggers, I mean, it is stressful because when, like it's basically like the coffee example, right? Where we're doing things, our body is functioning, it's alive for that whole period of time when it's not eating. And so it has to fuel itself somehow. It has mm -hmm. to get some energy somehow. And the way that it does it is by triggering stress. And those stress hormones pull out our, basically our backup stores, our stores from our body fat, our stores from our glycogen, which is stored carbohydrates in our liver or in our muscles. Mm -hmm. And that process allows us to function allows us to stay alive and continue being active but in the long term it ends up the the cost that i was referring to is when if if we think of this fast on a longer term like it is let's say a month and we're still using as much energy as we do and we're fully fed when we're eating throughout the day we yeah. our bodies would not have enough energy stored 
to make it through that month or two months or however long. Mm. And it knows that. It knows that if it doesn't have enough food, it wants to survive as long as possible. And so what it does is it decreases the amount of energy it uses. It decreases what we would call our metabolism. Yeah. And the stress hormones, the stress aspect of it is what mediates, it's what uh, communicates that effect. So those stress hormones tell our bodies, hey, there's not a lot of energy. We need some right now. But also let's turn down the thermostat a little bit. Let's let's slow down. You know, let's not hit the gas as hard. So that way, if we don't have food for a long time, we'll be okay. We can survive for longer. Mm. And that is something that in the long term can end up doing. I mean, it, it kind of, uh, so our thyroid is our main regulator of our metabolism and how much energy we're using. So it decreases our thyroid function and we can start to see some symptoms. We might not, might not have as much energy going about our day. We might not, might not be able to focus as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, reproductive hormones get decreased as well. Cause if we're trying to survive a famine, we're not really worried about reproducing. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, you might see testosterone decrease or for women, you might see the, the female sex hormones decrease. And so I think over time, people start to feel a little worn down, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the long term. But the reason why it normally takes a while to show up is because there are a lot of benefits from fasting as well. And those tend, we tend to feel those a lot in the short term. And that's why I think when people do feel good, they're noticing those benefits and the cost hasn't caught up yet. Yeah. And so, yeah. Oh, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say the, just on that point, it's, I think the thing is if people fast and their normal diet too is filled with kind of shit, like just garbage, then of course they're going to feel good. Like, cause you're kind of, right. you're giving like a detox to your body of this trash, allowing your body to kind of like flush out the system. I mean, one of the things that I've heard about fasting is the autophagy process that goes on in your body. And that feels great. Like, again, I've, I have done like four day fasts and before, mm-hmm. and it you do you you feel like by there's some interesting things that do happen during those times my energy actually is crazy high like almost to a point where i can't sleep it kind of gets annoyingly high um but yeah it depends depending on like if i was just kind of like binging like the last like week i was like and then i do something like that yeah of course i'm gonna feel better because it's like i was just toxifying my body like crazy so yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was that I think is one of the main benefits is as exactly what you said. If most of what you're eating is not help helping you out, if it's not healthy, if it's junk, if it's garbage, whatever, then not eating those things will feel better. Yeah. Uh so so that's a huge part of it. Uh a couple other parts. So one is in a more direct sense, our gut health, where even mm. if we're eating semi healthy foods, a lot of people struggle on the gut side. There's a lot of reasons for it, a lot of things that can disrupt our, our microbiome, the bacteria and fungi and everything else that live in there. And when that happens, if we're not digesting our food well or we're taking in foods that are furthering that disruption, it ends up feeding those bacteria, it feeds the fungi. They produce toxic components, kind of, I mean, along the lines of what you're discussing. Yeah. Um, and those, and this isn't like a, some sort of pseudoscientific thing. Like these are like legitimate chemicals. Like one is lipopolysaccharide and it's, these are compounds that are known to be really destructive. And especially in people who have very severe infections or older and are like, like basically close to death sort of thing. Mm. You see extremely high levels of these toxins. Um, But you see much smaller amounts in situations like diabetes and obesity and heart disease and virtually every chronic health condition. 
And so they are really integral components on, on the harmful side that are just one of the main things that are really disrupting people's health. And so if you're eating something you're not digesting well, you have a, a messed up microbiome, it's those bacteria are, are consuming what you're eating. They're producing some of these toxic components. They get absorbed and then you're not feeling too well. And so again, even if someone's not eating junk, if they're, if they're having these gut issues and then they're finding relief from it from fasting, if they don't eat, you're slowing down that toxin production. I mean, there's going to be basically none when you're not eating and that's mm. going to feel a lot better too. So that's a, that's another huge piece of it. Yeah. And then, so yeah. Yeah. Okay. Are you going, keep going. There's, there's one more piece, but if you wanted to discuss, well, yeah, I think the gut health, that's a buzzword almost these days. I think a lot of people are starting to have like wake up quote unquote. I hate, I hate saying that, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like to just start to see like that there is, we're basically, I've, I've talked with, um, um, a buddy, you might know him actually, Jack Joseph. Do you remember him? He, he yeah. went to he's a couple years yeah. younger than us. He started a kombucha company. And so okay. I've had him on the podcast and kombucha. A lot of the big talk is the gut health that's associated with kombucha. Um, so we were talking and the, some effect that he brought up was just the quantity of bugs like that live in, in us and it's like we're basically like this bug hotel that's kind of sure. how yeah. you, you can think about it is we are just the plant like the planet earth for these little micro microorganisms and so how we what we give to them will determine what they give back to us and so it's it's weird when you think about it like that it's an interesting, it's like a nice, it can, it can be a nice symbiotic relationship or it mm -hmm. can really terrorize you and cause like leaky gut and that leads to other issues and all that, all that stuff that you know a lot better than me. But yeah, so I think that's, um, that's something interesting. And I guess the question on that is, I mean, maybe this is, this is not a simple question, but when you think of food and what is something that supports a healthy gut? Yeah, it's not quite a simple question because some of it will depend on where someone's coming from. If yeah. someone is really having a pretty bad dysbiosis, like a lot of really harmful microbes that have that have overgrown, a lot of fungi, for example, uh, or fungi as opposed to bacteria, uh, that will change what you can consume, like what you can eat and how it will affect you. So as far as maintaining a healthy microbiome, so someone who's already doing all right, like they, they don't have something too funky going on. And you would probably know if, if something was, was really off, you would notice a lot of bloating, uh, probably a lot of gas. You might like tend toward constipation. You might tend the other way as well toward really loose stools. Uh, mm. you know, people would tend to recognize when something's off gut wise. Um, although a lot of people live with it for their whole lives or for very long times and don't realize that it's anything pathologic. They don't realize that this is abnormal. Uh, or that it can also be improved. Yeah. So assuming that's not the case, let's take like someone who's doing all right on that front. I would say some of the most important components for creating a healthy gut. One would be uh, fruit and good quality vegetables as well. And the reason for that is the, uh, the plant compounds that are in there. So a lot of times these will be polyphenols or bioflavonoids. We're told that these are antioxidants. These are, you know, they're in a ton of supplements. And those components have basically selective antibiotic effects. So, and it, interestingly, as a side note, a lot of the antibiotics we use as pharmaceutical drugs 
have are things that we've gotten from our environment from fungi or from uh mm-hmm. you know from various like like barks and things uh various plants so yeah um so we've essentially evolved and developed with these things that help to shape our microbiome and they are basically selectively antibiotic against the harmful ones and in that way they then allow the beneficial ones to proliferate to produce in larger quantities and you end up with a with a healthy microbiome so i think that's one of the most important things and obviously when you're talking about instead a diet that's highly processed a lot of grain-based things um you're not getting those same effects as you would from more of the fruits and and uh, vegetables so i would say that's probably the most important piece and i think again we've you, you talked about how we've developed this symbiotic relationship i think we've also developed another way to think of it is more that we've developed this symbiotic relationship with these fruits and vegetables that have mm-hmm. allowed a microbiome that that have led to what looks like an optimal microbiome so what i mean by that is it seems arbitrary right it seems like how could these plant compounds just happen to kill the bad guys and, and allow the good guys to yeah. proliferate but i don't think it's arbitrary i think they are only good and bad because we've developed with these plant compounds so okay. when our microbiome's off it's because we i mean not only because we haven't been doing those things but it's just off is just relative to what it would be if we were doing some of the some of the better things um, yeah does that make sense yeah 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 that does make sense so what do you think about like the fermented foods because those are are big ones when you hear about like gut gut health yeah i think some are better than others part of the hesitation with those is we as modern humans like to think that we understand things better than our body has developed and so we like to add our own twist to it all so when something's fermented now it's not like somebody just um which i used to do this somebody just cut up a bunch of cabbage threw it in a jar uh I don't know, added some salt and water and then screw the top on and let it grow whatever it was going to grow based on the environment at the time. Yeah. Instead, what happens is they add bacterial cultures to it that they've determined are supposed to be healthy. And then those grow and then that's what we're eating. So my hesitation is, and I'm not necessarily recommending making your own fermented food. You want to make sure you do it correctly because yeah. you can also end up with some harmful microbes growing. But the... I'm not always a fan of the specific quote unquote probiotics that we're just told are the healthy ones. I think we haven't fully figured all that out yet. And so I think some of it ends up being off and can sometimes make things worse. Hmm. It's interesting. It's not really, uh, like you said, it's not really talked about too much. You kind of, people have like this idea, like you said, of what is healthy. And I think humans, we like to simplify things as much as possible. So it's like you hear kombucha or, um, what's the cabbage uh, kimchi yeah, or like yeah. kimchi or, or something like yeah. or sauerkraut something like that is fermented so therefore it's good for your gut microbiome but i didn't even like i if you laid out a bunch of different strains of bacteria and like mixed in like some that are harmful some that are, i i mean i would have no idea what that is and so it's like i i could tell you e coli is bad <laughs> it's like the only one i know <laughs> But but also you have E. coli in your in your gut all the time. Yeah, so like maybe I'm have, wrong. <laughs> you have strep bacteria as well. It's more of just are they kept in check by the good ones and having it's it's I don't like this idea that just balance is key and everything in moderation. However, mm-hmm. there is a balance that exists, and so it's in, interestingly like the ones that are harmful are not always harmful, and it also leads mm-hmm. to other questions like if we have all these latent harmful bacteria that cause all these infections, we can, yeah. we carry viruses as well. Like what leads mm-hmm. to 
a situation that actually causes infection if we're always exposed to them. But that's it's mm. kind of separate, but just just an interesting, interesting thought process. Yeah, that's an that's an interesting thought. Have you heard of um, or do you know a man named Gordon Ryan? He's like the no, top so. jujitsu practitioner basically in the world. Like he's the best basically in, okay. in, in, in the entire world. But I only bring him up because he had for the longest time a reoccurring staph infection on his arm that kept okay. coming back and it would he would take an he took like an antibiotic for like the full term went away for a week would come back and he did this for i think like a year he had to he had to battle this staph infection and what led to it and he believes that because he kept taking antibiotics for this it shredded his gut and mm. his gut health and so he did this for like a year battling the staph infection got rid of the staph infection but now he is consistently nauseous he can't eat anything except for like just like bland ass chicken and rice and yeah. like that's it and i'm like i don't do you have any like thoughts because like he's been trying to figure this out because he's like it's it's affecting my game or my game um of jiu-jitsu he's like i think i could be at this level even though he's already the best he's like i think i could be even better but i can't actually eat to fuel myself i can't grow to the size i want to grow to and yeah he's like getting i mean doctors have all taken tests on him but i'm curious do you like thoughts on that and antibiotics on gut health yeah, well, it kind of takes us to that other situation, right? Of And there's other things that we can do that are beneficial other than just fruits and vegetables, so we can talk about that. But it does mm -hmm. take us to that other situation of what if somebody is in that compromised position? They are dealing with these gut issues. They're not, their their microbiome is off. A lot of times, as, a, as you know, he's kind of saying, having something like fruits or vegetables with the fibers that are in there, that are in there those are going to feed the harmful ones. And so mm -hmm. you're going to end up feeling pretty bad. Yeah. So you can't, it, it, that's why it's situational. Uh, another interesting side note, just talking about staff is one thing that's actually being used conventionally in the conventional medical system for antibiotic resistant staff, because we just, you know, throw antibiotics at everything mm. is uh Manuka honey, which is a honey that mm. comes from, uh, bees that have pollinated tea tree. And so a lot of yeah. people, well, some people might be familiar with like tea tree oil or mm -hmm. tea tree as a, as like an herbal compound. Yeah. And so this honey has really impressive antibiotic properties and they're starting to use it for antibiotic resist resistant staph infections like that. And it happens to not destroy your microbiome in the same way that rounds and rounds of, of pharmaceutical antibiotics do. That's so, fascinating. Uh, yeah. That might be a better option. I mean, just to, you know, for, I guess anyone to consider, but, anyway, but there yeah. are better options out there is I guess what I'm trying to get at. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I think what's interesting about that is, and I've talked about this with other people on, on this podcast is, a lot of these pharmaceuticals, and you even mentioned it earlier, they all stem from typically a plant that's that's out there. And like they, they take it in a lab, they extract the part that they want from the plant, and then they make it into a pill or into some sort of um, consumable in the, in the pharmaceutical world. So I, my thought is, it's like, okay, if these plants that they're using to make these pills, like why can't we try the plant? first try the source and then if that doesn't work maybe we need to like a, a highly concentrated dose of whatever this is cool but i mean i'm always a like game for let's try the natural thing first quote unquote nat natural is a weird word but let's yeah. try the let's try the thing from the earth first and then we can try the other other way 
but that's a kind of yeah. side note. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And with that in mind, considering that a lot of medications, at least some and, and including antibiotics, do come from these plant compounds, I think there are potential benefits. I'm not anti-medication. I'm not anti-antibiotics, yeah, but I don't think they're being used well. Mm-hmm. I do think there's a place for antibiotics, potentially in a lower dose or in particular situations. There are certain antibiotics that I think are much better than others and others that can cause a ton of harm. Yeah. Um, so I think they... I, I do think there's a place for them if they're used appropriately. I don't think they're being used appropriately in most most cases. Mm-hmm. But so to talk about somebody who's in that situation, whether it's Gordon Ryan or somebody else who is struggling with what they're eating, yeah, they are experiencing bloating, gas, or all sorts of intestinal symptoms, and maybe other things too. Brain fog is really commonly tied with this. Uh, various mm. other psychological symptoms like anxiety and depression are as well. Uh, autoimmune issues are very very tightly tied with. Uh, gut microbiome problems and infections, mm-hmm. um, at, like all of them, everything from like Hashimoto's, which is, affects your thyroid, to MS, which affects your the myelin sheaths on your nerves, uh, or psoriasis or eczema like, on, on the skin. So there's a lot of a lot of situations where somebody might have this the situation, um, or where they might have their microbiome being off, and it is a trickier situation. For one, I generally start with making sure that somebody's eating the foods that they can eat that are not going to feed the, the bacteria or yeah. the fungi. And sometimes that's trickier than others, but the idea is you want to eat things that we digest very quickly and absorb very quickly. So that way nothing's getting to the bacteria or the fungi, the microbes, because if they're so thrown off, then feeding them is just going to make things worse. So you mentioned Gordon Ryan is doing all right with chicken and, and rice uh, some people, so normally protein is okay. Like animal based protein tends to be okay, whether it's mm-hmm. meat or seafood or chicken. Um, as long as it's digested well, which is another component here. And in that case, you need to have strong enough stomach acid. Um, normally fats are okay, especially the higher quality saturated fats, whether it's coconut oil or from ruminant animals like beef or bison or from dairy or eggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, those fats tend to be okay. It's rare that fats will feed the microbiota, especially cause they actually are antibiotic themselves as well. So a lot of people might know coconut oil is having some antibiotic effects. Um, and again, I think one thing we're coming at here too is is just maybe changing this narrative and the alternative idea as well that antibiotics are all inherently bad as opposed to they actually serve effects, serve benefits when it's the right context. So a lot of fats tend to be antimicrobial, antibiotic, antifungal. And so those tend to be perfectly fine in that scenario as long as they're digested well as well. And that can require uh, strong bile acid production and concentrated bile. And um, so that's generally okay as well. And then the carbohydrates tend to be more tricky. And this is where low-carb diets and fasting tend to come in, where mm-hmm. you're a lot of times the carbohydrates don't get broken down as well and end up feeding the, the microbiota, the microbes, and produces these toxins, people feel worse. So depending on the type of carbohydrates, some will be easier to digest than others. And in someone who's in a pretty severe case, maybe like Gordon Ryan's, um, fruits and veggies might not go too well, especially raw vegetables. Uh, Grains tend not to go so well. So he's doing white rice, which is a grain, but is highly processed compared to its brown rice counterpart. Mm -hmm. And some people might think that's a bad thing, but in reality, grains are not... Grains are seeds. They're seeds of the plants. And considering that, the the, the plants want those seeds to uh, survive so that they can reproduce, so they can yeah. create more plants. 
And because of that, they have a lot of defensive components in there so that animals don't eat the seeds. We, again, trying to outsmart nature, decided that we want to eat those seeds. <laughs> um, yeah. And then outsmarting nature even further, or outsmarting ourselves, like our, the older selves, we've mm -hmm. decided that instead of highly processing these seeds so that they're better digested, like white rice, which is all the cultures who used to eat rice would have white rice or at least sprout the brown rice. Yeah. Uh, we've now decided that we just want to take it whole because whole and natural is better. And so then we've decided that brown rice is better. And, and in reality, a lot of those defensive compounds are called anti-nutrients, uh, lectins and saponins. And people are familiar with gluten. Gluten is in that category of anti-nutrients. Uh, those are in that outer part of the rice. So when you strip away the, the outer part of the brown rice, you end up with white rice. Because of that, white rice tends to be much easier to digest. And that's probably why Gordon Ryan is able to eat that compared to brown rice. Yeah, um, I, I remember. Oh yeah, sorry, go on. No, no, go, go ahead. I was gonna say I remember when I heard this for the first time. I was like, it, it shook me because I was so <laughs> used to brown rice being the the healthy alternative, and always like when I'd go to Chipotle, order like the brown rice and just mm -hmm. make sure. Yeah, and then I heard this, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been terrorizing my body for so long now. <laughs> like, and I, yeah. I love white rice, so it's like. Mm, okay that's a, that's an easy switch like it was kind of like a relief but also like like i said it kind of shook me i was like geez like this is just i don't know like I, i'm hearing more and more like in the last three or four years like basically since i've been out of college and i'm starting to just hear these different different sides of health and after experimenting myself i'm like this makes sense it feels good like i, I feel better doing these things so makes sense to me but i'm not a i'm not i don't have like the professional side of it so i can't like explain it always i'm like it makes me feel good so i'll keep doing it <laughs> that's how yeah. i do it yeah yeah which is i think definitely a good start is listening to our bodies for sure mm -hmm. um yeah a good place to fall back on yes but uh, yeah and this happens with other grains too so like and I, i'm with you i used to do the brown rice and quinoa and i'm sure i found some other like odd grains at the time. Uh, but this is the case with all of those grains. It also happens to be the case with nuts and seeds, like uh, you know, walnuts, know. almonds, sunflower seeds. Those are all, the, they're all the same seed, just like the grains. Yeah. And so um, they have those same defensive compounds that are, are not that in the same way we talked about our digestive system working really well with fruits and almost seeming like it got designed that way. Uh, the opposite is the case with seeds and nuts. And when you look at those compounds and what they do, they disrupt our microbiome. They cause those imbalances. They cause the leaky gut, the intestinal permeability you had mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, they also have some components that directly shut down our thyroid. And again, when, like, when we consider tribal cultures, they were aware of this. None of them were eating brown rice or just straight quinoa or any other grain. Mm -hmm. If they were eating them, which some of them did, they made sure to process them well. And so they would either, uh, in most cases, they would either sprout uh, like soak and sprout them or ferment them, which degrades a lot of those defensive compounds and makes them more edible. So mm. you mentioned sourdough earlier, mm -hmm. and obviously wheat is the like mainstay. Wheat and corn mm -hmm. are like the mainstays of the modern American and Western diet. Yep. And you know everything: pizza, pasta, breads. But traditionally, people would have eaten something like sourdough, which is fermented and has traditional sourdough, which I should mention also most sourdough you find in the store is not actually fermented. They had to speed that process up and just throw some mm. flavoring in there so that it tasted the same. Oh, um, geez. Because no one, can be, <laughs> no one can be bothered to ferment it for 24 hours, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. get rid of everything. Um, so 
so yeah, this wheat that's made up a huge part of our diet as well has all those anti-nutrients in there. Um, and yeah, so the grains, nuts, and seeds traditionally, if they were eaten would have been processed in a way to reduce those anti-nutrients. And in that case, I think they can be okay. Some people do totally fine with them. I think in a case of someone who's in a more extreme state, maybe like, you know, Gordon Ryan is just a good example because I'm assuming yeah. he's not listening to this. So maybe he won't be <laughs> triggered by it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if he is listening, hello. <laughs> yeah. What's up, Gordon? Um, um, someone in that case might not do as well mm-hmm. with even the, even the well-processed, traditionally processed grains and, and nuts and seeds. They still might, uh, their digestion might not be strong enough and the microbiome might be thrown off enough that it still causes some symptoms. And Along with that, so can I mentioned raw vegetables. Cooking them tends to help break them down a little more so we digest them and absorb them easier and they're less likely to feed the microbes. Um, the same goes with with raw fruits where mm. most of them, again, we should be breaking them down easily, but if your gut's not going so well, you might not be digesting it well. Uh, and so the like shifting to a very easily digestible diet, I would say, um, so I mentioned the proteins and fats and then from the carbohydrate side, I do think the carbohydrates are really important, but yeah. maybe sticking to some very easily digested ones like honey, uh, like a raw, uh, not raw, but a good quality maple syrup. And most maple syrup at the store is like corn syrup. So you have to yeah. make sure you check that it's a real one. Um, maybe some fruit juice and people who are using carbs well, and maybe some particular types of fruits that are um, not too starchy or fibrous that uh, are not likely to feed the bacteria or fungi. Um, I would say that would be, and, and again, some people might do fine with something like a white rice or, or a well-processed grain, but mm-hmm. sometimes not. Sometimes the roots and tubers are okay too. Potatoes, sweet potatoes, um, parsnips and, and things. Sometimes those are fine. Sometimes they're not. So it's something you kind of have to test at least. And again, this is not the solution. This is more of the, what do I do when I'm in this state to at least feel okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but the solution then has to go on to how do you reshape the microbiome and, um, support digestion and and that's you know that could be complex as well yeah yeah that's uh it's unfortunate because like i uh definitely still love peanut butter and i eat peanut mm-hmm. butter all the time I, but i've i've yeah. you're not the first person to enlighten me about this and, and about the seeds and nuts and stuff like that i i know it i'm just have an addiction so that i don't want to break um <laughs> But yeah, it's yeah. it is wild, like you were saying too about like the raw vegetables versus the uh, the cooked ones too. I raw broccoli will like wreak havoc on me, but I cook broccoli just even for like a little bit. I cook it mm-hmm. and easy. It's just easily digestible. Like no no gas. It's like the gas that comes out of raw broccoli for me. It's <laughs> it's so bad. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you're not I, the only one. <laughs> I know, I know. And so, and I used to eat it all the time like that and hummus. It would just mm. be like my go-to because again, I thought like, oh, this is healthy. And oh man, I just, I wasn't listening to my body. I just had it so stuck in my mind that this is healthy. Mm-hmm. Keep, keep doing it. But mm-hmm. then I actually like, was like, wait, I have gas for like 12 hours after like almost like immediately for like 12 hours. I'm just like super gassy. And I'm like, why am I doing this? So I stopped. Yeah. <laughs> I stopped, and there we go. And I realized that cooking is good, but it's. I think like the the overarching thing about this is it's complex. One, so this is like you said, this is not the solution. Everyone, first of all, has like different systems going on. They have different environments, and there's a lot that goes into this. Is 
you are very much well aware of. Um, but there are certain things that as humans we've evolved to be able to like just adapt. I, I, I don't know, like just be able to utilize in our bodies properly. And that's the important thing is like, and I feel like most times like this is getting into the minutia. Like there's most times mm-hmm. people we know like what's quote unquote healthy and what's quote unquote not healthy. Um, but this is starting to get into the minutia, which I, I love. And I think people who want to take their health to that next level, like completely eliminate that brain fog you're talking about or to dive into these challenges that they experience of whether it's gas, bloating, whatever that that is. This is the stuff that you need to really dive into. Um, the other thing, oh, there's one question that kept that that popped up. You keep mentioning bacteria and fungi. Is mm-hmm. there a difference in like I know that there's a difference between bacteria and fungi? Yeah. But what is that? I mean, I always hear of bacteria in the body. I've never really heard of fungi in the body. So what's mm-hmm. what's that going on? Yeah, um, we have fungi that live in our bodies. And keeping in mind, too, our microbiome, which microbes just include any of those really tiny things that can be bacteria, fungus, parasites. Um, So when I say microbiome, it's just the compilation of all those things. We have those in our gut. We have them in our mouths. We have them Mm -hmm. in our on our skin everywhere. Like we you mentioned, like we've kind of developed with them. I only I mean, it's not even like earth and somebody like some species living on earth. It's almost like the trees and the grass like Mm. they are part of us like we we don't think of it that way, but we have developed with them all this time and they've helped us in various ways. And we've kind of, we've got this symbiotic relationship, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so there are, there are bacteria, there are fungi as well. Uh, some, so if you've ever heard of candida, candida is a fungus and people will have overgrowth of candida. Mm-hmm. Um, and so too much is definitely a problem. Um, you know, women who have like uh, fungal infections, yeast infections, they're pretty familiar with that. Um, which candida is not the only fungus, but we have, again, that what that is signifying is that the fungus have overgrown or fungi have overgrown. Mm. Um, f- oftentimes that can happen when we don't have enough of the healthy bacteria. And so some particular strains will help to combat that and vice versa. There's certain types of fungi that also help to keep the other fungi down. Um, so there's, it's a complex system. And again, like yeah. the research is, is actually pretty infantile here. There's still so much that's being discovered and so much that's not known. Yeah. Um, again, this is part of why very hesitant around probiotics. I've seen probiotics cause a lot of issues in talking about the problems with antibiotics, you know, that we know those at least to a larger extent, but yeah. probiotics, there's actually some, some suggestion basically that our microbes, as far as our gut goes, are supposed to stay in our large intestine, the farther down part, our colon. Yep. And, when they come out to our small intestine, that's like a harm, like a problem. It's like an infection. Uh, it might be called SIBO or CIFO, small mm. intestinal bacterial overgrowth or small intestinal fungal overgrowth. And there's actually some research that has shown a higher incidence of that in people who are taking probiotics where those strains end up inhabiting the small intestine. You don't want that. We don't want much bacteria yeah. in there. That's where we want to break down our food and absorb it. We don't want bacteria taking it from us and producing all sorts of toxins. So, um, Oh, that was, yeah. So as far as probiotics go, I'm a little hesitant, not only because of that, but also there's so much nuance, not only between different types of bacteria, but particular strains. So if somebody has a probiotic, they can look at it and next to the name of the, of the bacteria, there should be like a, some combination of letters and numbers. Mm -hmm. And that's a particular strain of, 
of that species. Yeah. And those different strains can have different effects. And some probiotics won't even tell you what strain it is. So we don't like a lot of the probiotics we're taking, we don't even know what they are. And then <laughs> yeah. of the ones that we are taking that notify that, that show the strain on there, it might not be a strain that has much research behind it, in which case we're just guessing. And so I'm pretty hesitant around that and prefer to shape our microbiome by what we're eating as opposed to using a probiotic, although probiotics can be helpful sometimes. Yeah. What do you think about uh, prebiotics? And what so, are those, I guess, if you can clarify that? Yeah. Yeah, prebiotics are basically, they tend to be some form of carbohydrate, which could be like a fiber, or there's a, there's a bunch of different types of carbohydrates. And they basically, we don't break them down, down and absorb them. So they make their way farther into our t- intestines and feed the bacteria and the fungi. Now, okay. part of what I was talking about, about the selectivity of, of like the compounds in fruits and vegetables, there's some selectivity with prebiotics too, where certain ones are going to be more likely to feed certain types of of microbes. And so the type of prebiotic matters. And along with that, when we're eating, so there's prebiotics in fruits and vegetables, mostly it's where we're getting them when it's not in a supplement. And in that case, they're packaged with the polyphenols and bioflavonoids that prevent those prebiotics from getting consumed by the wrong guys, the bad guys. And so when we take the prebiotics without those things, we're more, we might be more likely to feed more of the harmful ones, especially if we already have harmful ones. So Again, I tend to be careful with prebiotics. I think there's definitely a place from them. But if someone like Gordon Ryan were to have were to take prebiotics, he would yeah. probably feel pretty bad. Um, so, I mean, even when he's taking them with the, I'm assuming, even if he took them with the packaged fruit, he still probably was feeling bad. He's probably way off. But yeah, um, but yeah, because of that, I think there's a place for him. But it's not. It wouldn't be something I would go to right off the bat or or like outside of particular context. Yeah. Okay. That uh, makes sense. Um, Kind of going back to what kind of started this all about the fasting, I think we mm. took a very big tangent, which I'm <laughs> yeah. glad we went down the road we did because a lot of good information there. But there was a, a missing, or you said there was another segment, mm. and now I don't know what that is. So if you can remember, um, I remember, yeah, yeah, perfect. And you want to just th- jump into that, unless you have more to add about what we were just talking about. No, I think that's that's it. As I know, it's it's pretty complex. I hope like it wasn't too much. For it it is, on and like we can get in, and and I am, I do have some more maybe questions following up that stuff, but more just general because, like you said, I think we can get into the minutia real quick and dive into those weeds. Um, I don't know if everyone wants to hear that stuff though, <laughs> and and personally, yeah. it's like it could be interesting, but you're now going to almost start getting into. Um, individual cases and like like as again you've worked with probably countless people now where you've realized everybody has something different there's something that works well that doesn't work well that maybe a certain bacteria prebiotic like there's so much complexity there so i think that that was a good at least for me that overlaid like a lot of like what mm-hmm. just generally is going on and is yeah, kind of just powerful in in that sense and gets further questions maybe for anyone like listening they can think of like okay that maybe explains a little bit of what's going on in my body and my system and now they can take the next steps of pursuing more questions that they have. But I am interested in going back and and hearing what that missing or the next part of the fasting talk that we were talking about earlier is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
And I agree. And and I think the principles are really the the most important part. And then, and then mm-hmm. as you said, you can dig in deeper within those. Yeah. Um, so the next part is the kind of goes back to the carbs versus fats we were talking about earlier, where the so those are our two major fuels. We've got the carbs or fats, mm-hmm. and some. I would say it's tougher to use carbs as a fuel. There's more, there's more things that need to be in place. And when you can't use carbs as a fuel very well, that's when you start to see what's called insulin resistance and a more extreme situation there is diabetes. You also see this going on in any sort of like obesity or heart disease. Anytime someone's not using those carbs well, that's what's going to happen. And this happens on a smaller scale too. In a lot of cases, someone who's, um, who might feel like really fatigued after eating carbs, this could be part of the reason why there can be other reasons too. It depends on maybe some other aspect of the food, but our ability to use carbs is, is key. And a lot of people struggle with that. Maybe they're deficient in certain B vitamins. Maybe they're just under a lot of stress and that pushes us towards fat and away from carbs. Uh, Maybe something's going on with their microbiome. They've got a lot of uh, toxins being produced and those also happen to block our ability to use carbs as a fuel. Mm -hmm. So when that happens, if you're trying to, if you're not using carbs well and you're eating them consistently throughout the day, you're not going to be feeling great. You're probably not going to have a lot of energy. You might, you know, you might feel like heavy. You might feel always hungry, even though you're eating enough um, or what should be enough. And in that case, dropping the carbs out can uh, be beneficial. You can feel, you can run on the fat more. You have some energy, which is like using fats well is better than using carbs poorly. Um, mm. I would say using carbs well is best, more or less, so some combination of carbs and fat. But yeah. uh, using carbs poorly is definitely going to be worse than using fat well. And most people use fat well. It tends not to be a problem. Um, that's like our default backup state. If we don't eat anything, and that's what I was going to get at, we're, we're burning fat. So like we always like that's always our backup if we're not burning the carbs well. And so that's, I think, that other benefit of fasting is if someone's not able to use the carbs that they're taking in, then they get to rely on fat as a fuel and they feel better. They feel more consistent. Their energy doesn't go up and down as much throughout the day. That's a big one when it comes to using carbs well as irregular blood sugar, big crashes, big spikes. Sometimes that can have to do with the food as well. But if you're not using the carbs well, it's going to cause some blood sugar issues. So being able to run on the fat is like alleviates that problem for a lot of people. And as I mentioned, a low carb diet will do that, but so will fasting. And they actually mimic each other basically. Yeah the lack of carbs and fasting is one of the main mediators that shift to shift to fat oxidation. It also is one of the main things that causes autophagy, as you mentioned, and various other aspects here of uh, reactions. So that's the other piece of benefit that someone might experience, which is being able to run on the fat, um, which, and we can dig into that. The other thing too, is just, this is what then brings us to the next question of how can we do all these things without fasting? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things we can do to, improve our diet and and otherwise to improve our ability to use carbs and fix our gut and eat better things that aren't disrupting our gut and in that case we get the same benefits of fasting without fasting and without the cost of stress yeah yeah it's interesting and so i think the 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 challenge when i think and what started the low carb diet is a lot of carbs that um that people think about too are high in calories and now I'm curious what you think about like if someone's worried about weight gain, like with like if mm-hmm. they're eating like these higher cal- caloric carbs that maybe are quote unquote good. I don't really like to use that word either, mm-hmm. but um, 
yeah, I mean, like, how does your body work with that? Because when it comes to like weight loss too, and that's a, that's just a big thing considering like I don't know, a huge huge majority of our populations overweight or obese. Um, so people are always looking for how to lose weight, and a lot of people just stick with the simple calories in, calories out, and that's where like the carbs kind of yeah. Well, I mean, fats too. Fats are super high in, in calories. So maybe I just opened up a can of worms, but. I'm interested in thoughts behind that too. Yeah, it is a bit of a can of worms. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I would say, I mean, it's a, but a couple of things you brought up are, I think, are really important. So one, not only is a huge portion of the population overweight or obese, but I would say close to 100% of the of the population cares about their weight, is always trying to maintain their weight or improve their body composition in some way. They're always on a diet. And I think it's unfortunate that that's how it has to be because I think it shouldn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the aspects of our modern diet and culture and environment have contributed to that. So I think there's ways out, but yeah. So, so that is, I, I think it's pertains to everybody. Uh, as far as carbohydrates go, you know, when you ask someone, when you think of carbohydrates, what foods do you think of? They're probably going to say, my assumption would be something like pizza, donuts, cookies, maybe pasta, you know, mm-hmm. uh, probably bread. Yeah. And, those all have carbs, but when you think about like cookies and pizza and um, donuts, those have, first off, potentially more fat than carbs, calorie-wise. Mm. Um, they also tend to have a lot of really harmful fats, a lot of the, um, the like omega-6s, a lot of unsaturated fats, and a lot of vegetable oils and things. Um, yeah. Which, again, is another rabbit hole. I was going to say, there's I, a lot I did kind of wanna, yeah, I did kind of yeah. want to talk about that, but I was going <laughs> to let us talk about carbs first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of components in there outside of just carbs that are yeah. problematic. Those foods are definitely not ideal in most cases. We already talked about some of the problems digestively. Mm-hmm. Um, but another aspect there is there are a lot of other carbs that are not those things. I, I mentioned fruits and roots, fruits, and I think yeah. that those are a lot of our best sources. So mm. it's hard if somebody's eating like potatoes, maybe some white rice, maybe some sweet potatoes and whole fruit, and even like some honey, which is yeah. very dense. I think you would be hard pressed to really like, like people think that the, like people and like I, I've been there too. Like you think, I don't know if you ask somebody like how many carbs are in an orange or like in, in an apple or in like a whole two handfuls of grapes or something mm-hmm. um, or even a cookie or something. I think our thoughts are way off from how much is actually in there. People mm-hmm. think there's like hundreds and hundreds of calories. It's hard to overeat fruit and roots and stuff. Yeah. Um, it's hard yeah, to get yeah. enough carbs from those things, even if you're trying to. So I think that that's part of that is just a perception issue uh, as opposed to a perception and a food issue. Like where are you getting your carbs from? Are you binging on the weekend and calling that carbs because it includes pizza and donuts? Or is it like, are you trying to actually, or are you getting carbs from different sources? Um, yeah. yeah. And then along those lines too, and I'll leave this up to you if you want to talk about like, as far as the calories go and the whole calories in calories out mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. Let's, let's do it. Let's dive into that. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I think, you know, as I mentioned, like how pervasive dieting culture is, I mean, almost everybody is involved in it in the Western, uh, you know, Western uh, nations, mm-hmm. especially in the U.S. Yeah. Even more, I should say like way, especially in the U.S. But yeah, um, the U.S. I'd yeah. argue is the highest uh, where people, I, I, it's just, I think you put it nicely where 100% of the population it's thought about, like it's on, it's, it's literally probably on my mind every single day. And it doesn't help that I'm, I put myself in sports like jujitsu where 
it means something too. It's it's similar mm-hmm. to wrestling where I need to maintain if I'm going to compete, I need to maintain a weight class. So right. it's I never do anything stupid. Like I I never really did anything in wrestling too. I don't know if you if you ever cut like drastically in wrestling or anything like that. No. Yeah, I I told myself uh, I was I was glad Coach Cook wanted me to wrestle like 220. I was like at 200 pounds. I'm like sweet. I can just eat whatever I want. <laughs> like no chance yeah. I'm going to be gaining 20 pounds while wrestling every single day. But yeah, so it's it's something that's just on my mind. On it's just around like all the time. And like mm-hmm. you said, there's this lot of cultural things that press that issue or this that thought process, especially here in America. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, and I, and it's unfortunate, not because we shouldn't be caring about our health, mm-hmm. but it's it's unfortunate that so many people are struggling with their weight. I don't think, as I mentioned, like I think there's a lot of things stacked against us in that way, and that's really unfortunate yeah. um, that are pushing us in that direction. But the other thing too is the, I like the you mentioned calories in, calories out, and that is the equation, the the mantra, the like mainstay of dieting that I think everybody probably learned in health class when they were younger or on TV or, you know, wherever it was, mm-hmm. which is that all that matters is how much you eat, how much you take in and how much you expend through exercise and just daily living. Yeah. And if you eat less, you lose weight. You know, if you eat less than you expend, then you lose weight. If you eat more, you gain weight. And I think I don't know of many ideas that are, that like have caused more damage for my opinion, of course, yeah. than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you how many people I've talked with who are eating a thousand or have been eating prior, you know, a thousand, twelve hundred calories a day, um, in an effort to lose weight and are overweight and feeling terrible. I did mm-hmm. it myself, like from an early age when I learned that in health class and I was already lean, but I wanted abs. And yeah, yeah. the only result that, you know, the only way you do that is by eating less. Mm-hmm. And that was what started off a lot of my health journey. And it was, I mean, I was way under eating, which was, I, I think, terrible for me at the time when I was growing and yeah, yeah. caused issues. Um, luckily at some point I ended up turning that around, but not for way too long. And especially at such a young age, I think it was really awful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's harmful and not also accurate. Um, and part of this, I, I, it's, it's a tough one to break apart because there's a lot of moving pieces. Normally the first thing someone says is like, Oh, it's physics. It's the law of thermodynamics. Like, you know, energy can't be created or destroyed. And, that's true, but there are a lot of pieces in food and body fat and all the processes in between that add on and separate from that equation. Mm. So just like some really basic things, if we think calories in, what, what are we talking about with calories in? Are we talking about the amount of food that enters our mouth, the amount that then gets absorbed? Um, because those are two different things. Like we have to break that food down yeah. and then we have to absorb it. Those are two separate processes that can both have problems. Or if we don't absorb it and then it goes and feeds the bacteria and we absorb some of those byproducts that have quote unquote calories, like do those count? Mm. Um, Like, so, so those are all different questions Um, as far as just the calories in component. The other thing too, is it's really, really hard to measure calories in, like it's, it's very hard to measure calories in a food. There are studies looking at almonds, like a hand, like one serving of almonds and can't agree on how many calories are in there. And that's isn't, insane. Isn't the test for that basically they literally burn the the food and then they measure the energy that's coming off of the food? Yeah, that was how it originally started. It was called a bomb calorimeter, and yep. basically the idea was you you burn this food and it raises. They have like water around this like mm-hmm. um, 
this compartment and you then measure how much the water changes in temperature. And so it's a, like you're converting the, the ideas are converting that food to heat and then you're measuring that heat. And that is, and then we use that to compare food. So, you know, burn a mango, burn a steak, like burn some yeah. lettuce and like see what it all, you know. And from those experiments, they then came up with standards that they use based on different components of the food and then kind of extrapolated from there. So most of the time now, it's not like they're actually burning it. We're yeah. using the same principles. But that is the next crazy thing here. I'm glad you brought it up because that is not how our bodies extract energy from food. Mm-hmm. They don't literally combust them. And considering that, that's, for example, why fiber is, um, you know, is a carbohydrate that has four calories per gram like all the others. But we don't absorb fiber like other carbohydrates and produce energy from it. Yeah. it you know, normally it gets broken down and goes farther down in our intestines. But that's counting in some, you know, in some, some calorie counts will count it, some won't. Um, like, so that's an example of it. But along those lines, too, we don't use internally protein calories the same way that we use um, carbohydrate calories. Mm. The, the, there's so many nuances there that determine how much energy we actually get from that food and um, or whether it's used for something else. And that kind of brings us to that next piece is all of the things that happen between in and out. There's, not, there's a lot of things that happen there that are not body fat. Like if, if someone who's building muscle knows this, right? Where they're, um, if they're taking in, uh, you know, they're typically taking in some protein, they're using, you know, they're working out and then some of that protein gets used to produce muscle. Yeah. But we don't only have muscle and body fat. We also have bones and we have all sorts of other tissues and yeah. skin that needs to be regenerated. And so there's other structural components as well that are not factored in there. And some people with the calories in calories out will just say, you know, body fat or muscle or something else. And it's like, yeah, everything you take in gets put somewhere, but that's a very far cry from like that alone is very different from if you eat more, it becomes body fat or if you eat less, it becomes body fat or muscle. There's, um, so I guess the next part there is that our bodies are not simple machines mm-hmm. that just, and I like, they don't just shovel, you know, shovel in some coal or some food, they burn it up and then you get the energy out and that turns some wheel and our bodies work. Yeah. Instead they're intelligent and they adapt. So this next piece of the puzzle is that the amount of foods you take in and the types of foods you take in change what happens along the way and change how much energy gets used and produced. So taking in certain types of food might lead you to store more as body fat. Um, and maybe that's mediated by the gut microbes that we talked about earlier. You know, mm-hmm. if there's a lot of toxins being produced there that causes a stress state that makes us store food as body fat instead of using it elsewhere. Yeah. And so many other aspects of what we take in affect what goes on with that food. Are we producing a lot of energy from it? Are we, is our metabolism going up? Is it going down? Are we producing a lot of testosterone? Are we producing a lot of stress hormones? And those things will all dictate what actually happens with the food when it's taken in. And then, and as opposed to some arbitrary number that we determined as calories out, you know, when someone's saying calories in calories out is how much food did you eat? And then what does this equation say as far as how many calories went out or what does your Fitbit say or whatever? But those things are very, very rough estimates and don't account for all the things that change depending on the food you're taking in plus everything else you do beyond just exercise, you know, like sunlight and sleep and, and on from there are all going to also affect what happens there. So the short answer is there's a ton of things that there's a ton of other variables that can't be accounted for in that equation. It's way too simplified. Yeah. And even if we could account for every single one of them, there's still the problem of, there's still some, there's still some other problems. I mean, I guess it's, it's probably not worth getting too far into the weeds there, but 
I, mm. you know, I've, and, and I see this experientially as well. And obviously anecdotal advice is, or uh, evidence is what it is anecdotal. Yeah. Um, but I've seen it in myself. I've seen it in countless clients that I've worked with where eating less does not tend to equal or does not always equal losing weight or um, losing muscle or something and vice versa. Um, as an example, I mean, I know I mentioned I was severely under eating for a long time and surviving on, you know, probably a thousand calories or less when I was an athlete and everything. Yeah. Um, you know, well, middle wild, school and uh, early high school. Uh, uh, and the time to do that when you're an athlete, like you're expending so much energy. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. It's, ridiculous. it's really terrible. Yeah. 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 And later on in high school, I remember going up to a 2000 calorie diet like 2,200, I was measuring it at that point because I was trying to put on muscle for wrestling, actually. Okay. Um, and then later on in college, I was eating like 2,000 to 20. I was about more about 2,400 calories a day when I was on low-carbon keto. Yeah. And then the, and those things, as I mentioned, kind of shift us to the hibernation state where we're not using much energy um, mm-hmm. and I think really depressed my metabolism. And then later on, was able to go on to be eating closer to 4,000 calories a day maintaining my weight staying lean building muscle all that stuff um wild. you know yeah and there was a lot of times in between where like in that transitionary phase there was times where i was using you know five thousand plus calories a day and um but anyway yeah I, I see it a lot in clients as well where um i've seen clients who are maybe counter, <laughs> this is probably counterintuitive to a lot of people but i've had a client you know there's one in particular i'm thinking of where you know increased ice cream like calories from ice cream you know 300 yeah. to 500 calories a day and was if anything he would say leaner um and like more muscular you know so yeah <laughs> <laughs> that there's, there's hope there's hope for me because i eat ice cream every <laughs> single day <laughs> there you go <laughs> i love it um no that's it, so like a few things come to mind like one i think of where i've been personally because i mean in, in high school well in high school i didn't i didn't know what a diet was like i didn't know food mm. like food mm. was whatever was in front of me and i just ate mm. it all like especially being a lineman in football like i was just like i eh, just get big that's mm. <laughs> that was just like my mentality is get big and then like i said at wrestling I, I wrestled at 220 and i was 200 pounds so i'm like i can just eat whatever i want because like my metabolism's high i'm wrestling every single day like i i can't gain 20 pounds like i couldn't even if i want really wanted to try um and so but like now i've noticed when for me i find it when i gain weight it's mostly because i'm not moving as much as i should Mm. be yeah i i've like associated it with because i I've, i've gotten used to like what my diet is and like what i what i really like to eat and just what makes me feel good and of course i i binge sometimes and and do that stuff but I've associated like, for instance, I gained like 20 pounds after my surgery because I had my, I had a knee surgery. I legitimately couldn't move. I was moving from my bed to my couch pretty much for a couple months and I wasn't doing jujitsu anymore. And like the workouts I was doing were like upper body, just like curls, shoulder presses, like very simple movements that don't really get the heart rate going too much. And yeah, I gained 20 pounds and I'm so like now I'm down 10 pounds and get slowly working my way back but it's like that's what i've found in myself is like movement correlates to like weight fluctuation for me but it's like i guess for and like you said i mean then you go now you you brought up sunlight sleep your what nutri or what um not nutrients uh, like vitamins and minerals are you taking like 
I, I started taking like a lot of more magnesium and zinc and calcium and vitamin D3 in the winter, especially. I mean, best is to get it in the sun, but there's like just so much. So I think like a question is if someone's struggling and now they hear this and they're like, well, shit, calories in, calories out, bad. Okay. Mm-hmm. What and I but I want to lose some weight. Like, how do I even go about this? Like, that's that's a question. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. Uh, I I think the first thing that so part of the other issue, I guess, again talking about the calories in, calories out. Not only does it just lead us to eating less, but it also leads to this idea that it doesn't matter what we're taking in, all calories are equal. Mm. Whether you're eating donuts or you're eating steak or or um, fruit or vegetables, whatever, it's all equal. All that numbers is all that matters is that number of calories. Yeah, and so I, obviously I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Um, you know, we've talked about it in terms of gut microbiome, you mentioned nutrients and, and all, on from there, there's so many factors going on. Fats versus carbs matters, matters, protein matters. Um, so the first thing I would say is to focus on the types of foods that you're eating as opposed to the amount. So I'm not saying like all of a sudden double what you're eating, mm-hmm. um, but rather f- focus on shifting the types of foods. And I think that, that's always the best first step and other aspects of lifestyle too. Like moving, I think is incredibly important, mm-hmm. whether it's jujitsu or walking or swimming or tennis or lifting weights. Yeah. I don't think it matters too much. Obviously there's differences, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I think those are some great places to start. Um, another thing you mentioned was binging. And so I think that's such a common occurrence on people who are just trying to cut calories. Definitely happened for me. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking high school and earlier where, you know, I was, eating so little that then I couldn't, you know, you can't help yourself when you're, um, yeah. When you're then faced with a lot of food and gone long enough, um, without it. And that, I think that that's a good sign that on average, somebody is not eating either enough or they're not using their food well, or there's something that could be adjusted because we should be in a place ideally where we're fueling our bodies. Well, they're, they're well nourished and the energy that is being produced from the food is supposed to then turn off our hunger signals when there's enough. And so a lot of times what happens is, obviously if you're not eating enough, you're gonna have a mismatch there. You're gonna be hungry. There's no way there's enough energy. Mm -hmm. But you might even be eating enough and not using that food very well, maybe because of the type of food. And so you're full and and you're eating the amount you're supposed to, but that the, the food's not being used efficiently. Sometimes that leads to it being stored as fat, but it also leads to us still feeling hungry even when we're physically full. I think that's something a lot of people have experienced yeah and generally i think that's a sign of not eating enough of the quote-unquote right foods or not using our food well and when you're doing those things when you're when you're making those changes you i, I think that that binging tendency will go away i've seen it happen like i, I a couple of funny anecdotes i mean i know a couple of clients i have there was, it was a couple mm-hmm. and they uh they didn't tell me this when we first started but Often on weekends, they would order in from a restaurant. Maybe they would order like a pizza or, or two yeah. and um, and like a bunch of sodas and everything. And they would just go all out and like eat a huge amount of this food, like way too, not way too much, just like a huge amount, yeah, like yeah. way more than anybody would at a normal <laughs> meal, yeah. you know, half a pizza, a whole pizza, whatever. And uh, and they told me, and so they didn't mention this to me when we started and we'd started making these changes. And I did have them eating a little bit more than they were because what they were eating day to day, I felt like wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. And they then told me that they didn't like, they had 
kind of went to get the pizza and everything, but they like weren't that hungry to eat it all. Like they ate like a quarter of what they would normally eat or half of what they would normally eat and then stopped even wanting to do that. Like they didn't like after that, they realized they didn't really want to go and get the pizza because they they were already feeling satisfied and and comfortable and full Um, in like in when I say full, I don't mean physically like full. I mean like, like nourished. (laughs) Yeah. Don't it's different. You can be, yeah. Like you can not be full. Like you could have, like your belly can be flat and you can be totally comfortable and still not want to eat. And that's uh-huh. something I didn't experience for, I don't know, how long, 15 years. Right. And so I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have not, uh, maybe not 15 years, but um, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this can resonate with that. And yeah, there was, um, there's one other experience or anecdote that I think is worth sharing, which is a client who had been working with me for a while and was very regimented in her food and was always scared to deviate at all you know she Mm. felt like if she went and had a bite of the birthday cake she would eat three pieces like she it would trigger that binge she wouldn't be able to to like control herself feel Mm -hmm. out of control and it would throw everything off and you know i would encourage her like she like it wasn't that clear but this is what she realized after and so you know i would encourage her like like it's okay to have to have some pie or cake occasionally it's it's all right yeah and um she told me that she like she comes back to me one time it's like i got a piece of pie like a slice of pie and I had two bites and I didn't eat the rest. Like I did not want to eat the rest. Wow. And she was like, just incredulous. Like she just couldn't believe that that would be the case. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying this because I'm like some miracle worker. It's, <laughs> it's like, this is just regular physiological processes. Like our yeah. hunger signals should turn off when, when we're giving ourselves the fuel, that the, like our bodies, the fuel that they need. Mm. Um, so in circling back to do we like, as opposed to just calories in calories out, what do we do? I would say first work on changing the types of foods moving away from a lot of the harder to digest things and like the, the grains, maybe some of the raw vegetables and um, things that you don't feel as good with um, fruits and vegetables or fruits and cooked vegetables, I think are, are a great place to start mm-hmm. some high quality protein with that's very nutrient dense, like seafood and um, you know, dairy and eggs, assuming that you digest the dairy well and um, you know, some good quality animal meat as well. Um, there's, a couple other components here. I know we talked a little bit about the fats or like we were kind of leaving that and maybe now would be a good time to mention that there yeah. are certain. Yeah. Yeah. Go into okay. that for sure. Sure. So, so another huge component here beyond like the carbohydrate and, and protein side is, um, is the fats. So we mentioned nuts and seeds earlier and mm-hmm. how for one, they don't want to be eaten. So they've got these defensive compounds in there. Yeah. Well, that's not all. They also, are hibernators so we know that animals are hibernators like bears and squirrels and and actually well squirrels don't all not all of them hibernate i think they just fatten up um but there are other animals that hibernate too. yeah and um and so these seeds hibernate as well to make it through the winter and cold spring so that then they can germinate in the in the cold and in order to do that they have certain types of fats that allow them to basically slow their metabolism down um, so they're not really doing much until it gets slightly warm and still kind of cool. Um, and then they can start to function and those fats happen to do the same thing in the animals that eat them. So if we look at hibernating animals or animals that try to fatten up for the winter, they eat a lot of nuts and seeds. So if you were to take bears, for example, they eat a lot of acorns and, um, and other nuts and seeds or salmon, which happen to have a lot of these fats too. So mm-hmm. we'll get to that. But, um, so there's these fats then serve to help the ab- animals hibernate and slow their metabolism down yeah. during the winter. And and if the bears, for example, don't get these types of fats, they can't hibernate. Like they, mm. they will 
they'll starve because they their bodies will wither away because they can't slow their metabolism down enough mm-hmm. and they'll starve during the winter. Um, and there's research looking at that where they restrict this type of fat in, in, the, um, in the bears and mm. they can't go into that hibernation state. Interesting, okay. And so these fats are um, called polyunsaturated fats or PUFA and more commonly they're known as omega-6s and omega-3s and traditionally they're considered the heart-healthy fats Mm-hmm. They've got the heart healthy label. When you look at like the canola oil at the store or the corn oil, like it says it's heart healthy. Yeah. Um, and that's because it has high amounts of these fats, which we've been told are supposed to help our heart. And um, I've got some articles maybe talking about that. So we don't have to go too much into that if, unless you think it's worth doing, but um, yeah, it, I mean, I think it, I, I think to an extent it is because like you said, it's the way it's perceived a lot of times mm-hmm. is it is the yeah. healthy alternative or the healthy option but there's a lot that's unknown or that people don't know about it. So I think that is something that's important to at least mention. Yeah. The short answer is a lot of the associations with heart disease are made using certain corollary factors, normally cholesterol. So we know we've got these cholesterol levels, the different types of cholesterol uh, levels and protein carriers of cholesterol in our blood. Yeah. And normally in a lot of the research that is showing that omega-6s and omega-3s are helpful for heart disease, what they're looking at is those factors. And so they see that these things drop our cholesterol down when they're given in certain amounts or they're supplemented or you have a diet that's high in them. It depends you know, on what the study's looking at. Mm-hmm. And then they say, oh, well, we know that lowers heart disease. So these fats lower heart disease. Yeah. It's one of the main ways, like places that research is coming from. And the problem is that it's not that simple. It's not that simple that the cholesterol in our blood causes heart disease and that high levels are causing heart disease and that lower is better and that lower prevents against heart disease. Those are all different pieces and it's just not quite that simple. There's a lot of other factors that, that are, uh, um, that influence that relationship. And actually maybe before we go on, I, I, this is something selfishly I can, I'm interested in. I'm very confused by cholesterol. And I think I can argue a lot of people are because I've asked this of people and no one Mm -hmm. really who actually understands it anymore, the general public, and I can't ever get like a good answer. So can you explain cholesterol? Because you hear about HDL, LDL, and like that's all I know. And then like you said, Mm -hmm. you want like, I don't know. So if you can maybe enlighten me with that, I would greatly appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. And I'll preface this by saying, like I can explain like the basic biochemistry or like the basics of what these are, but my view on what's necessarily better and not better is not the same as most of the mainstream. Yeah, so, obviously that's the same. I guess most of what, yeah, what I was like about today makes that clear. I don't but, think you need to make that at this. We're like almost an hour and a half into this. I think uh, yeah, people yeah. probably picked up on that. True. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> um, yeah. So cholesterol is a type of lipid. It's not a fat. It's a. It's like kind of a fat adjacent um another type of lipid and it serves a lot of purposes in our bodies it's used in our cells i guess their structure it's mm-hmm. used as a precursor to hormones so all the hormones that we have whether it's progesterone estrogen cortisol um pregnenolone testosterone all of those are coming from cholesterol directly like their cholesterol is like the precursor um it serves some functions in our bile uh, which helps us digest fats and helps us actually bind with some of those toxins from the bacteria I mentioned earlier. Mm. Um, Cholesterol is is a part of that. It also has important functions in our immune system. 
and that's part of why we see it in LDL and HDL. So I'll get to that in a moment, but it helps to deal with infections, um, has some anti-infection effects and antimicrobial effects. It kills off or helps to kill off some of the uh, bacteria and fungi if we're in an infection, if mm. we have an infection. Uh, so it serves a lot of important roles. At the same time, there are, well, I guess I'll start, I'll, I'll, I'll leave heart disease for after. So that's just kind of basics of cholesterol. There's cholesterol in the food that we eat at all, only in animal foods though. So there's no cholesterol in plant foods. Um, so whether it's like whether you're eating butter or eggs or meat or seafood, you're gonna there's gonna be some amount of cholesterol in there. Yeah. Uh, and then we also produce cholesterol, and we produce a lot of it. Mm. So an egg, which is supposed to like an egg is supposed to be very high in cholesterol, right? And I want to say it has like 150 milligrams of cholesterol. I'm not sure. Somewhere between 100 and 200. Yeah. And our bodies on their own will produce about 2,000 milligrams of cholesterol. Like That's like our basic needs for most people. Yeah. So when we're talking about these things, and eggs are very high, so like most foods don't, you know, most foods really don't have that much. So relative to our needs, the amount of cholesterol we're eating is not all that much. And whatever we don't get from our food, our bodies will create themselves. Like we mm. have our, our own mechanisms for producing cholesterol. So if you don't eat any, you're still going to produce basically the same amount. Um, if you eat a lot, you're just going to produce less. So the actual amount of cholesterol that we have doesn't change, but where the cholesterol goes changes. So, and like what it's doing. Yeah. Um, and that's where those markers are that we're looking at in the blood. So when like cholesterol is not like, doesn't, it, it needs to be transported. It's just a, like a basic component it needs to be transported to where it needs to go. And that's where those, the LDL and HDL come in. Those are actually proteins. They're carriers of cholesterol and they carry some other fats as well or other lipids. Um, and so you have LDL and HDL and both, they, they both uh, basically like our liver is kind of our hub for cholesterol more or less and HDL and LDL transfer cholesterol to and from our liver. Mm. So generally HDL is bringing cholesterol back to our liver and generally LDL is, is taking cholesterol elsewhere. And the, so, so we can measure the amounts of those, the HDL and LDL in our blood. We also measure, measure triglycerides, which are just fat. Um, it's not actually cholesterol itself. And those three numbers are then used to determine what's called our cholesterol level in our blood, which isn't actually cholesterol. It's actually a measure of triglycerides and these protein carriers of cholesterol. Okay. Um, that's, that's like the basics of those components. Is, is that all, like, is there any, any questions so far? No, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So then these, the regulation of whether we're going to have high amounts of LDL or high amounts of HDL is all going to vary based on what's going on in our environment. What are we eating? Or do we have an infection? Um, are we having a lot of damage to our arteries? Those are all going to determine, like our body's going to regulate in, in response to that. And so... As I mentioned, cholesterol is an important part of our immune system. It's an important part of our cellular structure. Mm. It's very healing in itself. I would say it's, it's actually a pretty healing compound. Um, but when we have a lot of damage going on, we're going to see an upregulation of that cholesterol delivery, uh, which, as I mentioned, the LDL is the one that's delivering things from the liver elsewhere. Um, so if you've got a lot of damage going on in your arteries, if you've got a, an infection, if um, if there's some other need for cholesterol, maybe your cells aren't using it well, and so they want extra. Um, that's all. Those are all going to be factors that are going to raise LDL. Okay. And understandably so, that can be a sign of something being wrong. Yeah. It also could be just a sign that um, 
your tissues need more cholesterol for some normal process. Um, not necessarily a bad or good thing, but it could be correlated with some harmful scenarios. Um, HDL, on the other hand, is bringing the cholesterol back to the liver. Maybe it's not needed as much, but interestingly, one of the other times when that happens is when our liver's struggling. Sorry, when our liver is struggling, yeah. uh, when there's something going on with our liver. Maybe our liver is our major detoxification organ. Yep. And so when it's needing to detoxify things that we're taking in, like alcohol, for example, it might increase HDL because it needs more cholesterol there for um, exporting things in bile. That's one of the main. Like our bile is is produced in our liver, it goes through our gallbladder, and is excreted in our intestines. And that's one of the main pathways that uh, that we get rid of things like um, like alcohol. Well, not necessarily alcohol. It, it's a way that we get rid of various toxins, yeah, um, various toxic components from things that we have to detoxify. And when our liver is needing more fuel, whether when it's needing more help, when it's under a lot of uh, a large burden, mm-hmm. it's going to increase HDL. So we have like so. Then from there, we have all these corollary factors that kind of throw everything off. We have this general idea that you see heart disease in, in people who have very high cholesterol levels, which is generally high eight, caused by high H, uh, sorry, high LDL. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, that can happen if there's a lot of damage to the arteries. You can see high levels of LDL. Or if you're not using cholesterol well, you can have high LDL. Or if you have an infection, which is also associated with heart disease, um, that'll increase LDL. And... I know I mentioned LPS earlier, which is also called endotoxin. Yeah. And that was that, that component of the bacteria that's in, in, like involved in all these chronic health conditions. They see that compound in the plaque in arteries. Um, and that's a, it's a toxic, basically infectious component. Uh, can you hear me, Vince? I know yeah. it cut out for a second. Yeah, it cut out for a second. Okay. We're good. We're good. Okay. So that LPS is a toxic component, causes, it's responsible for sepsis. I don't know if people are familiar with sepsis, but it's like a major cause of death when someone's very sick. Mm. Um, and you see that in the plaque in, uh, in heart disease, and you also see cholesterol there. Now, I would argue that the cholesterol is there to help protect against the endotoxin and some other things and help to heal the area. Yeah. The mainstream argument is that that cholesterol is partially causing that mm. and causing that plaque and, and therefore we don't want to have a lot of cholesterol or a lot of LDL. It means that you're going to have a lot of plaque. Yeah. Um, for my view, I mean, and I don't disagree if you have very high LDL, it can correlate with that, but there's also other things that can cause high LDL where it doesn't correlate at all. And along the same lines, whether the LDL is the cause or the effect is like a, a symptom or the actual root problem yeah. is a whole other question. Mm-hmm. And so that's like one corollary measure that's used Another thing too is we have this, then when we have this, when we take this idea, so from the mainstream, you have this idea that the LDL is the problem. Yeah. Um, then you take anything that decreases LDL, that's assumed to be good. And so I mentioned that with the, the polyunsaturated fats, the omega-6s, the omega-3s. Interestingly, alcohol also will do that um, and increase HDL. So all these things that tend to decrease LDL will increase HDL. And that makes sense. It's like a switch. You go from sending the cholesterol cholesterol out yeah. to bringing it in. Yeah, and so you have then this corollary idea where if it's decreasing LDL and increasing HDL, that must be good. And so now we've put all these things that are that do that in this category of good. That includes the omega-6s and omega-3s. It also includes alcohol in moderate amounts. There are some other things that will do it as well. Um, generally, I would say it's not things that we want to be focusing on. So, to, so yeah, I, I mean, I guess in summation like cholesterol is has vital roles in our body ldl and hdl have vital roles 
dysregulation there can be a sign that something's off. Like if you have way high levels of one, way low of another, that, or, or vice versa, like that can be a problem. Yeah. Um, but it's not as simple as LDL causes heart disease or cholesterol causes heart disease. And when we use those as core, like correlations um, that we determine whether something's good or bad on, um, then I think we end up getting st- like steered in the wrong direction. Yeah. Again, it kind of comes back to that idea of trying to simplify such complex mm-hmm. structures that are going on. And I, we want such simple answers, but it's not. It's not simple. And so that's where a lot of the confusion comes from because that, that was that was a great, a great job at kind of digging into what that exactly is. And I actually didn't know a lot about the how cholesterol is used within the body. Again, I have very, very little knowledge um, of of its function and and what it actually does. So it's 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 just interesting. I guess that's that's again, it's like hearing this. Okay, now for someone who's hearing this, and what does that mean then? If they just got some blood work done, or like, what, yeah, like what does it mean mm-hmm. for them? I mean, what can you do with that information? Then is kind of a thought. Yeah. Well, so one thing that that we can do, and this is actually seen in the research, is that we can kind of get rid of this idea that eating cholesterol is a problem. Yeah. The largest study ever done looking at this is called the Framingham Study. It's from Framingham, Massachusetts. They've been following these people for 50 plus years and looking at their cholesterol intake and fat intake and correlating it with heart disease. And the short answer from looking at that research is that ingesting cholesterol has no effect at all on heart disease. Mm. Um, along the same lines, cholesterol levels in heart disease are not that well correlated either. So from that, that research, they've shown that half of people who have heart attacks don't have high cholesterol. Now, there is still a slight correlation, um, but not that strong, obviously, if half of the people in that state don't have heart attacks. And I know firsthand quite a few people who have had heart attacks and their cholesterol was under 200 um, and 200 to 240 is borderline high. It's not even considered high. Mm. Uh, although they'll start to put you on medication at that point. Yeah. Um, anyway, but so, so applications there are that a, I don't think we should be scared of cholesterol that we're eating. Um, B if cholesterol numbers are off, it still can mean that there's a, that something's off, but it doesn't mean the cholesterol is the problem. And then when we consider a drug, um, which is uh, the statins are used for Statin, cholesterol, yeah. Yeah, what those do is those decrease our own production of cholesterol. Mm. And it will, by doing that, decrease your cholesterol values. It'll decrease your LDL um, significantly because there's just less cholesterol available. But that comes at a cost of all those things we talked about that cholesterol does that is not a bad thing. And I think that's where you see a lot of the side effects of that medication, which there's not a shortage of. The the incidence of side effects there are pretty high. Um, And I also think it goes to show just that the medication does not go to treat the root of the problem there. Yeah. Um, that being said, in someone who has already had a heart attack and is, or is in like a very high risk group, I do think there's a place for that medication. Um, but it also has effects that are not just decreasing cholesterol. It also happens to work as an antibiotic or antimicrobial in our gut. And I bet I'm willing to guess that in people in very high risk, that effect outweighs the harms of decreasing the cholesterol production and maybe in a case where you're so dysregulated that's helpful too but the point i'm getting at here is i think as you said we are kind of looking at this a little myopically we're kind of missing the forest through the trees and we don't from my view we don't have to be concerned about things that contain cholesterol foods that contain cholesterol yeah when somebody's concerned about heart disease we shouldn't just be focusing on it lower is definitely not always better i see that too where people are on stands and are driving their cholesterol way down Mm. um 
and that's known to have side effects. I mean, it's associated with things like diabetes. It's associated with like muscular damage because cholesterol A, produces hormones that help to maintain our muscles, but B, is that structural component that helps to maintain our integrity there. And there's some other side effects as well that yeah, I think, aren't side effects, they're just effects. Yeah, I've, I've heard that people on statins um, tend to also have either early onset like dementia or mm-hmm. uh, some mind, just mental, mental just decay, really. I mean, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. my my grandmother, she was on statins like a lot of her life and she now has Alzheimer's and not saying that that's why like there's a lot that goes into that as well but it's like did that did that push it forward I mean again she was like a heavy smoker too it's like a lot there so but I don't know it's you you hear about that stuff and it's unfortunate because it again you're simplifying something that's not so simple and it sounds like we don't know and you have some drastic side effects of these things. I don't know. There's, it's it's upsetting to a sense because, who knows? Maybe with with the high cholesterol, they would have been fine, and like a person wouldn't have experienced these side effects that now have devastated their lives. I, I don't know, and and that's I don't know. Yeah. Well, and also, could they have like? Are there simple ways to reduce cholesterol levels? in that way that don't involve statin yeah and you're, you're right cholesterol is a huge component of our brain yeah, yeah. like a major like build like a, i don't remember what the percentage is of our brain that's made up of cholesterol but it's a big portion um relatively and yeah so not having it is is not great for brain health yeah um yeah but that's the other thing so there's a lot of ways that you can decrease cholesterol that don't go with the statin or mm-hmm. don't involve a statin and don't have the side effects instead the side effects if you want to call them side effects are also happen to be other benefits like maybe some weight loss in someone who's overweight or feeling better or whatever else yeah um and that includes a lot of the things that we've talked about i don't know if you've seen like if you've gotten your cholesterol levels checked at all but when i was on a low carb diet um i mean i've i always donated blood so i have a like from before that so i always i have like a long history where i can see my cholesterol levels Mm -hmm. when i was younger you know high school and everything there were maybe like 160 170 which is like very much in the normal range when I was on a low carb diet, they jumped up to at the peak 278, which is well into the high range. And any doctor would have had me on a statin um, at that point. And when I went to uh, when I then shifted my diet, started increasing carbs a lot more, uh, a lot of high quality fruits and honey, and um, decreasing the polyunsaturated fats, which I'll mention, mm-hmm. like which which is where we got yeah. all this from. Um, when I was doing all that stuff, my cholesterol dropped a hundred points in less than a year. Maybe it was like six months. Um, it's like one seventy five, and uh, Damn. it's been there since then. Yeah, more or less. You know, in that range. Yeah, that's that's wild. I think that's that's almost like something I feel maybe I should probably be doing, but I think everyone should be doing is taking like your blood work yearly and just seeing that stuff and kind of taking these measurements and. It, it helps i mean it helps just understanding like what things and then you can mm-hmm. correlate like all right well i have made these changes um and at least it's better it's more information I'm, I'm all about like the more information you have the better so yeah and you can do it independently now which is great it's mm-hmm. really easy to order a lab test online and just go into the the place where you know quest or uh, lab core and they'll take your blood and send you the results the next day yeah um because again had i Got, gotten that blood work done and at a doctor as opposed to having been through my blood donation 
you know, and I didn't know any different. I might have been on a statin, and and so at such a young age. Again, I'm not know? saying like yeah, yeah, and I'm not saying like nobody go on statins. I'm not saying don't listen to your doctor. And yep. just, you know, let's let's just keep an open mind when we're considering these ideas, and and yeah. Um, but I'm ready to talk about about the polyunsaturated fats. I don't yeah, know, yeah, yeah. No, where that, you wanted to go? No, that that was like I said, that was that was perfect. I I wanted after you brought up cholesterol, I did want to take that little that little tangent just because selfishly i didn't understand it that well so yeah. that was that was a really good um really good little side side talk but yeah let's let's go back to those polyunsaturated fats or pufas as you call them i like that so yeah yeah it's it's a lot less of a mouthful yeah 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 so pufa which is p-u-f-a stands for the polyunsaturated fats um and so i guess to back up just a step there okay. we've got three types of fats overall there's you know intricacies but mm-hmm. we've got saturated fats got monounsaturated fats and we've got polyunsaturated fats the pufa yeah um if you want you can call monounsaturated fats mufa most people <laughs> don't but <laughs> um I'll, i guess i'll allow it <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> <laughs> um so as i mentioned when my cholesterol dropped 100 points and it stayed that low yeah one of the things i was doing at the time was dropping the polyunsaturated fats way down and those are the fats that we had left off those are the hibernating fats those are the ones that are found in the nuts and seeds they're also found as i mentioned in salmon mm-hmm. um, and other very cold water fish that have a lot of fat and the reason for that is because these uh, fats are all liquid at room temperature so anytime you have corn oil or fish oil or anything else it's going to be liquid at room temperature and for you know and at colder temperatures as well and that's why the cold water fish need these omega-3s is because if they had solid fats when they're swimming around in the water they'd just float to the surface um Mm -hmm. and that wouldn't go too well so they need to have these liquid fats um and along those lines so in the same way that liquid fats and pufa which are pufa Mm -hmm. go with hibernation they also go with cold temperature, which also goes with hibernation. One of the things we do when we're hibernating is we decrease our temperature, our body temperature, so we don't um, we don't use as much energy. Mm-hmm. And so those things are are not uh, not unrelated. Where these basically the mech- like the effects that these have are all on slowing our metabolism down. It's all shifting us toward hibernation and colder body temperatures. Yeah, which does i mean and there also has the side effect of decreasing ldl and increasing hdl which as we talked about maybe doesn't matter all that much or maybe isn't such a good thing um and you can also obviously lower cholesterol levels including ldl without um you know without using those fats as i mentioned and as i experienced myself yeah so the these polyunsaturated fats have the same effects on ourselves and when i mentioned earlier when we we're talking calories in calories out there's a lot of things that affect that equation one of those things is these fats because they're going to decrease that calories out regardless of what else you're doing. They're going to shift us toward that hibernation and reduce the amount of energy we're producing from our food. Mm. And so I think that that's another key component when it comes to moving away from there and, uh, you know, shift like shifting the types of foods. I think decreasing the polyunsaturated fats in favor of the mono and saturated fats mm. is a good way to increase your metabolism, increase the amount of energy you're producing and decrease any of the low energy brain fog, things like that, that go along with moving towards hibernation. Yeah. And that what that looks like as far as foods go is shifting away from getting your fats from nuts and seeds and all of their, their oils. So all of the canola and soy oil and cottonseed oil and peanut oil and all of that. Mm. Um, and shifting toward uh, 
olive oil and avocado oil or avocados, which are mostly monounsaturated. They've still got some polyunsaturated in there, but mm-hmm. um, enough that it's not much of a concern. And then also shifting toward more of the saturated ones. So the ones from um, eggs and dairy, like you know, butter and coconut oil and palm oil and meats like like beef and lamb. Um, the the fats that are in chicken and pork or from like conventionally raised animals are going to be high in PUFA as well. So mm. for those, you'd want to stick to lower fat cuts. So like chicken breast as opposed to a chicken thigh or like a pork chop as opposed to like, I don't know, like a pork shoulder or um, like pulled pork or yeah. ribs or something, which will be high in PUFA. You know? okay. And then seafood wise, staying away from the fatty fish would decrease PUFA. So salmon's very fatty. Chilean sea bass is, is very fatty. Um, mackerel, sardines, those are all going to have a lot of those omega-3s, those low body temperature hibernating fats. and um, But there's a lot of low-fat seafood that you can have that like that doesn't have a lot of the PUFA. Um, this would include like shellfish. You know, mm-hmm. You've got shrimp and lobster and crab and um, also mollusks like mussels and clams and oysters. Yeah. But then there's also a lot of low-fat fish like cod and flounder and halibut and mahi-mahi and grouper and trout and on from there. So yeah. There's a lot of options that aren't high in those fats. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, on the fish topic, there's also the the, the challenge of like the mercury that people mm-hmm. see a lot of uh, in the bioaccumulation that happens when you have those bigger fish, and especially the I think it's the ocean fish, right? That like like tuna, um, especially kind of yeah. bioaccumulate just because they're old. They they live a long life and they eat a lot of these smaller things and just builds up in their system and we fish them and eat them and then builds it. Does it stay in our system? Do you know, like when it comes to like mercury or something like that, or is that something that we kind of pass? Unfortunately we do not. So <laughs> okay. You can, you can watch the trail of, of pharmaceuticals that are in our water, plasticide sizers that are in our water. Um, and this is so like, you can find like, you find like SSRIs yeah. or antidepressants in fish and then in people who eat the fish. Oh my God. Um, and like, same thing with the plasticizers and, um, and heavy metals and things as well. It's, it's, which is really unfortunate Yeah, how much like pollution and things are affecting that. But yeah, the heavy metals too. I mean, I, I, tuna is one of the lower fat ones. I think it's fine to have occasionally, but yeah, you do want to be careful with the, the mercury in there. Yeah. It's rough. I love sushi, even though again I'm in the Midwest. Shouldn't be eating probably sushi <laughs> here. <laughs> it's probably should be uh, staying away, just eating any of the local like walleye or something like that. Um, or is that is that have a lot of um, pufas or pufa? I don't. I want to say I don't think so, but I'm not sure. Okay. Um, you do want to be careful. So like tilapia, for example, I'm pretty sure is lean, but it's farm raised. And talking about like things that are used in that case, I would I would probably be hesitant there the things they use for farming those are yeah probably wouldn't want to be eating them but like if you were to get a wild caught tilapia or like other wild caught lake fish i think it would be okay depending on the the lake i guess but again i mean this is we talked about like minutia before i think there's a lot of things to focus on before that for sure so i wouldn't worry like i i mean i think it's worth considering but yeah it's just kind of yeah where a lot you know how important it is yeah. yeah exactly i mean for the for the general person again these are more selfish questions at this point um sure yeah yeah but so kind of switching gears but this is something we haven't really talked about but i think it's important to note when we're when you're sharing this information and talking about this are you kind of generalizing both men and women or because there's 
clearly different hormonal balances that that go on in hormonal cycles um and that's affected a lot by these diets and by what we're intaking so is this something that you do you specifically work with men or do you work with both uh both genders or both um yeah both male and female and i guess like how does that affect your like how you help people and, and stuff like that yeah i'm smirking because so i do work with men and women i, I want to say it's about 50 50 okay um but i'm like i talk a lot about like menstrual cycles all day and stuff, so <laughs> it's, i'm very used to it all <laughs> yeah no it's i yeah. well i think it's important that men and um, clearly women need to understand what's going on with the menstrual cycle but i think it's also important for men to understand it as well and i've uh i have gotten just to understand it more um just from, i don't know if uh kelsey anderson you would not know her because i went to college with her but she i had her on the podcast and she kind of dove deep into the the menstrual cycle for the women and like hormonal balances and and everything and just studying the herbs that um i use in teas a lot there's a lot of great herbs mm-hmm. that support a woman's cycle so i've kind of gotten to understand that a little better my girlfriend as well she's super she was not on birth control for the longest time and she would just control her cycle with like different herbs actually and like support herself in in these ways and super cool so like i've I've grown fascinated by it because again it's something that i don't experience so that also just interests me because i'm like it's it's bizarre but yeah 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 so sorry go on though no yeah um yeah i i think so as far as nutrition goes, for the most part, I would argue that it doesn't change too much between men and women outside of, you know, outside of, of course, like there will be uh, women might have certain cravings at different times and things like that. I think that that's also just kind of, you know, just stronger signals of what might be needed at a time. Yeah. Of course, like food intake is going to vary at those times too, depending on where someone's in their cycle. But I guess the reason why I say it doesn't change is because I don't have like a concrete view of that anyway, where you need to be eating a certain amount every day. Like I rely a lot on intuition and have my clients rely a lot on that. And like, how hungry are you? What kinds of foods do you want to eat? So that's something I'm already doing with men and women anyway. So it doesn't tend to change much Okay. Um, because I don't think there's a better way to do it. I mean, I mentioned how many factors affect like calories in and calories out. Yep. Those same factors affect what macros are ideal. So we are, we happen to have really sensitive tastes to what we need, like salt, for example. Like we're able to tell very and hydration. Like mm-hmm. we're able to tell to a very, uh, like a very small detail where we're at on that scale yeah. as far as like salt and water balance and hydration. And so, if you listen to your salt intake, you know your salt desires. Like your salt intake should be perfect, more or less. There are certain things that can throw it off, but um, so part of what, like part of what changing all these foods in a way that allows you to like get away from a lot of what we've obfuscated our current lives with. Like when you're eating a lot of like food, fried and vegetable oils and like donuts and pizza and whatever else, I think it's very hard to listen to your body because you're not going to use that food too well. Maybe your gut's thrown off. You're probably going to be hungry when you're full. You're probably not going to be feeling as good as you could. And so that's a place where it's pretty tough. But if you start dialing in the nutrition side, I think you can then use your intuition and how you feel to dictate what you're eating and when you're eating it. And I think that that is, I think that that's the key, like I think, or a key or like a huge part of this. Um, and so with women in their cycles, I think that's part of that as well. Right. Um, they're like, if 
you're having an intuition toward needing something at a certain time, generally I think that's something to pay attention to. Whether it means you eat the exact thing is another story. But mm -hmm. if you're, you know, for example, if you feel like you have a desire to eat um, like potato chips, for one, I mean, I think you can get healthy potato chips, but also, yeah. you know, maybe you're craving fat, maybe you're craving salt, and you can get those things from other places too. So yeah. it's not always like, oh, if you're just craving this food, eat it, but rather like listen to what your body's telling you and use that as information. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That's, that's a good point. Cause like you said, it's, it, the body doesn't, I, maybe maybe you would know this but like the body's not going to tell the difference between like a potato chip like on the biological level or like something that has the same like fat and salt content right like or is it taste wise ta so yeah so ta like taste wise for example like if we use an artificial sweetener it tastes really sweet we don't know that we don't taste the difference between that and sugar so we might find ourselves craving something with an artificial sweetener yeah even though it doesn't have the carbohydrates our bodies need which is why they have the craving for sweet food mm -hmm. you know like those cravings for sweets aren't aren't bad. They aren't like harmful. Mm -hmm. If your blood sugar's dropping, you need something with carbohydrates to bring the blood sugar up. So when we've distorted and manipulated our food so much yeah. that we can't rely on our taste, then we do have to consider it more logically, right? We we can't just say you're craving sweet things, so anything that's sweet will do. We have to consider like what have we done to that food that might make us not want to rely on our taste for it? You know, like if we're considering um uh, like donut versus fruit yeah if we want the t if we want the fruit that's probably a good indication that there's things in there that we need if we want the donut there's probably an indication that there's things in there that our body wants or certain things associated with the taste but we not, might not actually get it from that food yeah yeah um, no it makes sense yeah getting it would not satisfy that that need yes yeah and something like you said that's huge and i've begun to learn this is that intuition of when my body is like hungry versus when my body or my mind's bored and I'm wandering like I, I when I need food versus like that I think I learned that actually from like fasting kind of I'll be honest mm. like that was kind of okay. a lesson where it's like do I really need this food right now or do I want this food so like there was like that kind of and while like I mean we talked a, a lot about the fasting and the pros and cons and all that stuff but I think that was like a good lesson I kind of took out of it well I don't do fasting much anymore I still think there's like the benefits I I like to incorporate like a, a prolonged fast like maybe like once or twice a year um, just because hmm. I do like the pros like I do think that they're good even though you're saying you can hit those with a normal like diet I think there's also just the I like the discipline aspect of it as well like something like I, I challenge myself maybe make it a little spiritual so those are all right, right. all different and just completely personal but the it is interesting like when you do start to understand that and really start to listen to your body instead of just like feeling hunger and immediately going sit and satisfying it like feel it and actually like sit there and feel it like feel the hunger and be like okay what what is this where is it like because is it yeah is it just like timing wise like i'm used to eating like at this i've gotten used to eating at this time is it am i hungry like do i need because and there's differences there's little minutiae of what's going on in my body that i can now tell and like you said like it is amazing i think it's fascinating how when you listen to your body, you, it tells you exactly what it wants. Like I'm thirsty. I'm hungry for salt, for fat, for like red meat, for like chicken or something like that. It's, it's bizarre, but it's, and 
I don't fully understand it, but and so like this is this is nice talking with you about this cause stuff because it it does break it down like oh this is scientifically like why you're experiencing stuff like this. Yeah, and and circling back and kind of correlating with you had asked about like women and mm-hmm. if this changes too much. So on one hand, yeah, I mean I I guess the part that doesn't change is listening to what your body needs, mm-hmm. and I think that tends to be the best way to go about it. Um, and you might have increased salt needs at one point, or like you know there should could be some other component to certain foods that's helpful. And I I mean there's nothing wrong with adjusting based on that, um, based on where you're at in your cycle or yeah. or any other. The whole thing is that anything else in our environment can affect us hormonally or on any other level. So whether it's, again, I mentioned like sunlight or how active you were, how much you sweat, like those are things are all going to affect how much liquid we need, how much sodium we need, mm-hmm. how many carbohydrates we need, um, how many, how much protein we need and, and certain minerals along that line as well. You know, if we're not eating as much sodium, then we might lose some potassium and magnesium. So maybe we need more of those. And so, yeah, that's why I think the easiest way because unfortunately there's no way to just test exactly what your body's levels are of all those things you, yeah blood like we think also like a blood test is like this perfect representation of what's going on but it, it can change within a day yeah. it can change with, with within different samples or between different samples in the same moment mm-hmm. um it can change week to week and your blood is not reflective of what's going on in your tissues and that's not necessarily reflective of what's going on elsewhere like in you know in your urine or something so yeah it would be really great if we just had some perfect way to know exactly what we needed yeah i think the closest we can get to that is working on listening to ourselves and removing the things that make it like that blur that connection you know like and not fully you don't have to fully remove it i'm not saying never eat a donut i, I know i keep going to donuts i like donuts <laughs> you, but <laughs> clearly someone likes donuts <laughs> I, yeah, I do too <laughs> yeah, like i said i, I probably cupcakes whatever I, my uh my cousin sent me this tweet the other day and it was like in quotes um i think i'll treat myself today and it was and then in like parentheses like me never having once in my life not treated myself like not yeah, not yeah. restricted myself from treating myself and i'm like ooh triggered <laughs> like i i always treat myself <laughs> but sorry yeah go on <laughs> no no it's it's fine um but i will say so in you know you, you mentioned the the like women versus men situation yeah. i do think I do think in many ways women have gotten the short end of the stick. And I know you're kind of alluding to some of this. Um, I mean, for one, a lot of the dieting things are targeted towards them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like, so all of the terrible things that that creates, I think tends to be worse in women than men. I think you see a lot more under eating and eating disorders in in women. And I don't think that's biological necessarily. Um, You know, I think that can be influenced by our environment. For sure. Um, So I think that that is all... I mean, I don't, I, there's not too much to say there other than that it's unfortunate. But also, again, there's ways to to work out of those things. I'm not saying it's easy, but mm-hmm. yeah, it is. It is. Um, yeah, that that's definitely something that I see. Um, and I think you mentioned birth control, and I think that whole industry and the industry that led up to it has quite a history of taking advantage of their consumers or yeah. or the patients and and. If you look at like the history of estrogen used as a medication, it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's terrible. Like it's terrible. It's been marketed for a different, um, situation every decade or two found not only to typically, not only to make that situation 
like not only to make not make it better but it tends to make it worse mm-hmm. and then they pivot to something else so various forms of estrogen have been marketed for like you know it, it started out as um as a pro gestational uh like medication like they were using uh what's basically now birth control to encourage pregnancy and to have a healthy pregnancy hmm. um then that didn't go too well and then yeah you know it kind of just went on from there then it was supposed to be used for like uh menopause and then it was supposed to be used to prevent like heart issues and um various other f- things along the way it's it's a pretty uh pretty aw- awful history there's uh, a woman by the name of Carla Rothenberg okay. who has like a really great um, like synopsis of that whole that whole situation. I don't remember what her paper is called. I think oh, actually, I think it's the rise and fall of the estrogen industry or something like that. Okay, um, I can send it to you, to you after. But yeah, yeah, just details like <laughs> the the terrible history of of how basically women have just been manipulated to continue take continue to take this drug for whatever it is that they're dealing with. And it's only tended to make things worse. And that obviously does not mean I'm fully against it or anything. But health-wise, I think it's, uh, it needs, you know, it's best to consider some things like that and, and yes. look through the research of its history. And um, definitely uh, seen quite a few women who have been harmed by it. Yes. Yeah. The, the challenge there is obviously, like, I would assume, like, there's, there's a time in life when... W- girls don't want to get pregnant so it's like this is a good solution if you don't want to get pregnant really effective but if you also don't know what it's doing to your body and what what's happening that's not fair that you need to understand what you're getting yourself into from the beginning and hearing this and talking about this with so many people now or so many women now they didn't know this like when they were first i mean what you're put on the on the pill 12 13 maybe younger i don't i don't know like around like that age and you stay on it until you maybe want to have kids which maybe is like at this point like 30 years old so what that's almost 20 years you're on this pill that's gonna do something (laughs) it's gonna do something to your body and now we're understanding there's a lot of harmful effects that it has on your body your mental health just your your gut health just a lot there's a lot there and again there's it allows women and allows people to be more i guess for lack of a better word like sexually free and like be able to embrace that which awesome great but understand the the pros and cons like the the gives and takes there and that's that's what needs to be understood um and if you don't, there's also there's condoms and other goods. There's there's good choices too that also prevent pregnancy that you can still do stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also like hormonal contraception does not just mean one thing. There's a lot of different types, especially nowadays. You've got the different IUDs, some which have hormones, some which don't. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got all the different forms of hormones, all the different progestins so to speak and estrogens um i think so overall i think when you're considering something that i so i know the narrative is that the way that these prevent pregnancy is by telling your body that they're already pregnant and you know i don't really agree that that's the case especially when you're considering that the same types of one the same types of hormones are in like the abortion pill 
I think that what you're, I think a better way to characterize it is that you're creating an, a, an environment that does not want to be pregnant or cannot, cannot maintain pregnancy. And I think there's always a cost to that depending on what the type of contraception is. So, um, yeah, there's, it's obviously like a, there's a lot to dig into there and then like, and you know, it's, (laughs) it's a tough one. There's a lot to dig through. As you said, there are good alternatives that, and I think the worst part, I think the real tragedy here is that people specifically women who are being put on these things are often not made aware of it. Yeah. Doctors are, normally not make you know are a part of that of course and also how universally it's prescribed for anything it's hormonal contraceptives are no longer contraceptives they're used for everything from acne to um, period cramps to anything else yeah and yeah and so i think that that's and as you mentioned like we are potentially starting to see some of those ramifications we're seeing a lot of fertility issues in women that, that are only getting worse and worse. And that's not, I definitely don't think that's only caused by hormonal no. contraception. There's other factors too, For but sure. I, I think, yeah, I think that it is a factor. Um, and there are, yeah, there's other, uh, methods, condoms work. Um, you, there's, you know, the fertility awareness method mm-hmm. and, um, symptothermal method i think is just like another name for that yeah um that are worth considering and there's other combinations of things you can do thereof but yeah um yeah it's it's a tough one yeah it is it is um when you work with a client do you so you focus mostly on on diet do you ever do anything in the exercise realm or like the movement realm or do you kind of uh leave that for other people to to focus on yeah, uh, I I do. I mean, nutrition is a big focus, but um, I think when you're considering health, you know, health is the the primary focus, yeah. and I think nutrition is a big part of it. Movement's a big part of it. Sleep's a big part of it. Uh, mindset and and stress are big parts of it. So I tend to work through all those modalities. Um, sometimes I'll give like actual workout programs, but typically don't. But I do encourage exercise in certain ways. I think. Uh, a lot of people tend a lot of people who are trying to be healthy tend toward over exercising mm. but obviously a lot of people are under exercising too mm-hmm. I, I like to think of it I, li- I know you mentioned movement and I like thinking of it in terms of movement more because yeah. whether it's hiking or taking your dog for a walk or um, martial arts or something I think that those are all those can all be just as good or better in some cases than weightlifting at a gym or running on a treadmill mm-hmm. or something so I definitely yeah I mean I definitely address those things. Um, but my focus is not on like what is the best workout for yeah. performance versus versus hypertrophy or something else. Although I'm happy to talk about those things too. I was a personal trainer for a while and oh, cool. um, you know trained for sports and and you know bodybuilding for myself and things like that. So uh, powerlifting, yeah. all that. You did you ever compete in any of that stuff like powerlifting or anything like that? No, I never competed. I was just it was just like different training modal- modalities I went through. Um, yeah. Yeah. I never really got into big into like the weightlifting stuff. I mean, I always did it through Mm -hmm. college. Um, I think like you said, it's the biggest thing is finding something you're going to consistently do really. Um, Like I said, for me, jujitsu, just it's fun. It challenges me physically and mentally and I can get out there and I can do it every day. And like and the beauty of it is like you show up even if like you're sore or tired like you show up and you just take it light a day but you're still there for an hour 45 minutes whatever it is just a light day mm-hmm. 
and uh, but then there's days you can go for like three hours and like just like go all in and so that's that's kind of why i like it i've also gotten really big into swimming recently just because oh nice yeah it's just another thing i don't know i've never been like i haven't been bad at swimming but i haven't been like good at swimming and so like just being mm-hmm. around all these lakes now i'm like why not like i, I love and it's just a good reason to be outside and after jujitsu you go to a beach and just swim around for a while it's it's really nice but yeah the like i say the importance there is finding something that excites you and pursuing that um and just doing it because man again just the there's like there's physical differences on days where i move and days that i don't move in in the mental it's mostly the mental health and if you can do something outside there's just the air like breathing and air and mm-hmm. oh just breath work and stuff like that there's there's so much there as well um what do you so what do you do now now that you're like on the move a lot um well i haven't done so i haven't done traditional weightlifting like powerlifting or bodybuilding or yeah. anything like that in five years maybe okay um so was shifting a lot more toward movement based things so part of that was martial arts like i did uh, muay thai for a while nice um which I love and I'd love to do again, but there's, I don't know if there will, if I'll run into any more Thai gyms along yeah. the way on my travels. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'd love to. Yeah. That's awesome. But uh, yeah. And um, there's also some like movement based training, some of which involves weights, but it's just not very traditional mm-hmm. uh, that I like as well. There's a, a system called functional patterns that I'm a fan of. Um, so I follow a lot of their, their workouts and, and things. That's generally what I do now other than more like walking and hiking and things i mean it's um yeah not too much structured exercise for the most part i like that yeah do you know um a man named ito portal mm-hmm. yeah so my yeah. my brother went to one of his courses or something like in thailand or yeah i think it was in thailand um and learned a lot and so he does a lot of that stuff and i just learned through my brother now but that's that's fun stuff because it's just like you said it's unique i like it because it hits the like little muscles in your hips and your ankles and your joints like it really challenges those and it's all body weight so you can do it anywhere like with with stuff and i like that i i, I like that and for jujitsu it's functional for me yeah 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 and i should mention i haven't like when i was like i weightlifted at least four days a week consistently from the time I was 13 till I don't know, it was like 20. Yeah. Like I would like, this is coming from someone who was like, that was all there is, you yep. know? Um, I could never imagine a point in the future when I, when I wasn't weightlifting and just trying to get as big as possible mm-hmm. or, or muscular as possible or whatever. Um, yeah, I kind of fell out of love with it for a couple reasons. I mean, it was for one, I just didn't enjoy it as much. It's kind of what we're talking about. It's not, it wasn't as like mentally stimulating and exciting for me mm-hmm. and, not enough new experience and and kind of uh rigid yeah. in its structure uh but the other thing too is i felt like it didn't help i didn't i felt like it wasn't translating well to performance and movement and i felt like it was kind of doing the opposite i was like bulkier and slower and less coordinated and those aren't things that i've so like then when i would try so i was kickboxing at the time and doing muay thai at the time yeah and like a little bit like you know toward the end there and um I felt slow and mm-hmm. like sluggish and heavy and I was, I mean, it was heavier, you know, so I 
was so like i kind of let myself lean out a little bit and lose some weight which felt better movement wise and realized that i cared more about that mm-hmm. yeah when you start uh, it's I, I love seeing the the big bulky guys come onto the map for the first time and then they, and then they sit down and then they realize like oh i've actually like these these muscles are almost a detriment like it's nice to, if you use it you push someone off you like you can muscle someone up but it only works yeah. for the lower level guys like at the upper levels they're gonna know like what to do with the with a big guy they're gonna tear you pick you apart and it's fun it's it's fun for yeah. Yeah. being uh on and i'm and i like i said i i like for me, like the good, a good weight range is like 190, 195. I'm at, I'm at that like 200 pound again, just because of the surgery and gaining some weight, um, which is like nice because I do feel strong on the mat, but I feel like that slowness. Like I, I'm a little slower and it's just the, the gives and takes of, of the sport, like depending on where, where you see yourself and where you want to go. Yeah. yeah. Um, so kind of last few questions actually that i think last two um first one i'll say is you you mentioned like a lot of research papers and and stuff is there is this public knowledge like is this public access that you that people can can get to or how do you get where do you get these like good quality research papers yeah so there are it's it's crazy how like the institute like how institutionalized it's become and so it is like there's a huge paywall behind research unless you're like through university but luckily there's uh, a really great i mean there's a couple but um one in particular is called sci-hub c uh, sci-hub okay and they like they're like an, an independent i think russian um like company system that basically essentially like pirates the studies mm. but it's like so that's, I mean, I use Sci-Hub. I mean, it, I guess pirating is all relative. Like yeah, charging $80 cool. for a study is also, <laughs> is also like burglary. So I don't know. It's also robbing people um, yeah. of information that can change lives. So mm. I don't know how you balance those things out. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but I recommend using Sci-Hub uh, so you can get full text for papers because you can find an abstract anywhere. But reading an abstract of a paper only tells you so much. Yeah. And when you, you mentioned quality, you so quality is, is a tough it's a it's a tough thing to measure when you're looking at research right because mm-hmm. we know there's a lot of industry ties with a lot of researchers and they have to at least denote some of it and we like to think that that doesn't influence outcomes but <clears throat> it seems to in some ways in some cases um you know when you tend to see researchers affiliated with certain companies coming to certain results and other people not it, you know it brings up questions yeah not to say that we should never trust industry-funded research um but we just have to consider it as such mm-hmm. and the more important thing is looking at what actually is going on in the study, like what what they're actually manipulating and what the effects are. And mm. that requires a lot more time and effort than just reading the conclusion. Yeah. And sometimes the conclusion doesn't line up all that well with, mm. with what they found, yeah. um, or at least, you know, it's open to interpretation. And so, um, yeah, I find it, it's, the interpretation is the, is the colorful aspect. That's like the creativity aspect to an extent um, where you can look at data and come up with different interpretations or look at statistics and look at it that way and consider why it might've happened. And you might think it happened for a different reason than somebody else. And the researchers are just giving their ideas of why they think it happened. Yeah. Um, but that's what science is where, you know, it's, it's a test that you have a, a hypothesis, something you think is going to happen. You test it out it happens or it doesn't or something else happens. And then you explain why you think it happened. But 
it's not a rigid, uh, it, like it's normally thought of as fully conclusive. Everyone agrees on one thing or another. Um, it, you know, something is entirely based in science or it's not. And in reality, it's much more murky. It's much less black and white. Um, you have lots of papers that contradict each other, you know, in their findings. And a lot of research does do that when you look at it as a whole. And mm. again, there's a lot of reasons why that can be, but it, you know, it like, I don't know if that, I don't know if that answered your question at all. But. No, no, it, it did. Um, I guess the other thing, or do you ever use PubMed or do you know? Yeah. Is that a good, yeah, is that PubMed. a good source? Like for it's, it's a database. It's a database. So yeah. it's, yeah. So as far as finding articles, you can use PubMed, you can use Google scholar. Yeah. So it's like scholar.google.com. Um, those are great ways to search for studies. Yeah, yeah. But once you get it, it's, you know, sometimes you can read an abstract and get some information, but in reality, it's helpful to read through the whole paper to understand what, what actually went on. And so for that, some of them will be available for free, but other ones you either need to pay for it or be a part of an institution or use yeah. something like SciHub. And again, this is more of a selfish, I mean, and for people listening, if they're interested in actually taking the time to do their own research and, or I guess read these research papers because the, when people say do their own research, uh, that, that kind of gets attacked now. Um, it's more reading because <laughs> people think that doing your own research is, they always associate it to watching a YouTube video and then that's uh, right. Yeah. Or reading a quick, you know, five steps to do this yeah, article, exactly, like five reasons exactly. why this is so the case. Yeah, yeah. I'll say read someone else's research. Um, yeah. If people actually want to do that. I think it's good for them to, have that understanding of where to go if they've never done that before um so i've always used like pubmed or google scholar um those have been my go-to's as well uh and like i said selfishly i like to do this specifically for the herbs and and tea that like i like to research Mm -hmm. and just kind of like i'll be honest i don't dig too deep into those i'll definitely read the abstracts that's a good indicator of what this is and then if I like mm-hmm. it based off the abstract, then I'll, I'll dig into it. But no, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's good to know. Um, so f- I guess final question, bringing it back to tea, where does tea fit in all this? Is tea, how do you see tea? <laughs> seem nervous asking. I that. am, I am, because you're going <laughs> to, I might have to edit this part out. <laughs> <laughs> tea is perfect. You can never do anything wrong. <laughs> There we go. And, we're, and we'll close it there. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> no, yeah, seriously. Um, so I know I mentioned plants and fruits and mm-hmm. vegetables and the compounds in there being beneficial. So I think tea falls somewhere in that realm. Um, I think where it falls can depend on the type of tea and how much is being drunk. Yeah. And are we talking about drinking actual tea or are we talking about taking some compound and and extracting a large amount and putting it in a supplement and then taking it that way. Yeah. So the reason why I say that is because I know I mentioned before, uh, with these, how a lot of these compounds have their effects on the gut. And I think that is the main like mechanism through which they have their effects, exert their effects is on the microbiome, both in the gut and even internally as well. Um, so when you're looking at a lot of herbs, they have antibiotic effects. Mm-hmm. I think that is, accounts for a lot of their benefits. Again, not because antibiotics are all inherently beneficial, but because the ones that are in these plants tend to help keep the harmful guys away yeah. and the, allow the good guys to, to grow. And I think that's one of the main components here. And so I see, I think most teas fall into that category. Um, I think that's where a lot of the medicinal properties might come from. Um, 
my a lot of the studies looking at them are looking at certain compounds and high amounts and then you start taking those as supplements and whatever and those things that are said to be beneficial i tend not to agree for the most part with the mechanisms that they're looking at i know i mentioned like the stress from fasting can be i guess i didn't mention this directly but it can be mistaken as a good thing or you can look in the same way that we look at like cholesterol values as some indication of what's going on but that can be misused yeah um the same thing can happen with whatever end product end point we're looking for in a study and we so these things that are associated with stress which can also be good things get lumped in with the rest and so i think sometimes that happens when we're looking at one compound in a large dose is we see this there's this certain effect we we are looking for and that makes us think that it's good i, I don't always agree i know i'm being kind of vague here but it, so much of it varies on like the specific compound for sure but i think the amount matters so like when you're so what I'm trying to get at is the high doses when they're saying those are beneficial. I'm a little iffy, and I think generally we really want to look at the mechanism. When we're looking at the amounts that are in teas, I think generally they are going to be helpful in keeping our microbiome um, in a good place. So I like that. Um, one thing that I, I guess my only uh, caution or like from my point of view that I'm hesitant with with tea is just that it can. It depends how someone's drinking it, right? And so um, I think. I think, of course, we want to be getting enough liquid, but sometimes if we're just like drinking all day, maybe to uh, to like replace hunger or something like that can sometimes like in the same way everyone says like, you know, if you're hungry, maybe you're thirsty, you should just drink more. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes the opposite can happen too. Like if you're just drinking a lot, you might actually be hungry and you might just try and be trying to kind of yeah. mistakenly replace the, the wrong thing or, or um, yeah, like soothe the, the wrong feeling. Um, so that's like one hesitation and along with that too like i i'm a fan of getting enough carbohydrates so i would probably prefer like tea with honey as opposed to just plain tea and getting a lot of liquid um you're a heathen yeah but (laughs) (laughs) for all the true tea listeners out there they're like you're a heathen (laughs) is that the case yeah no it's because yeah it's blasphemy to add any sugar no but actually a lot of places they, they send honey sticks with uh with their teeth so not i guess we'll let we'll let you slide <laughs> okay okay yeah the, yeah um but I, I like tea myself like i um i don't drink it too often but back when i had tea i would drink some ruibos mm. um sometimes in the evenings um with some you know honey and milk just a splash of milk yeah, yeah. Um, i wonder if that's really bad too <laughs> <laughs> no no depending on where you're at that's uh that's proper but for I, I experienced that in Ireland uh, for the first time. I actually put milk and um, did I? I don't think I ever put sugar, but I did put milk and like some black tea, and it was good. Like I was, I never have done that before, but I did it because like everyone out there did it, and I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll try it. But and so it was good. But uh, yeah, I I'm very much a kind of a purist when it comes to like just. I just want to taste. I think there's a lot of complex flavors that go on um, in a cup of tea, so I kind of want mm-hmm. to experience those flavors, and it, it fascinates me. I mean, that's obviously why I'm, I'm I'm here at this point. Is it fascinates me at like just how one leaf, like one plant, can produce thousands of different types of tea. Like that that blows my mind. So, I mean, like I said, that's what brought me here. But I am also fascinated by the quote unquote health benefits of tea and like what that means and i try to do my best of like looking into it but i also don't want to be like 
spewing misinformation. And then there's like things you actually mentioned a lot earlier, um, a compound, uh, saponin, is that it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Saponin. Mm -hmm. That is, that's in tea. Cause if you pour a nice proper cup of tea, you'll actually get the bubbles on top. Um, but I think you mentioned it in a negative kind of context. So like, I'm curious, yeah, like, one is saponin like always negative. Two, I guess what is? I may, yeah, this might this might <laughs> I might be extending this last question a little bit more, but yeah, I'm curious. No, it's okay. Yeah, so there it's a large category of compounds that have varying effects. Yeah. So same thing with lectins. Like you have lectins that are in grains versus lectins that are in fruits, and they're very different. Um, so it's more just like a, a category of, of a type of chemical. Um, they're not inherently bad. The other thing is the dose, right? So, mm-hmm. well, although even so, so like the dose of even an amount that you're getting in a grain, I do think can be harmful, whether it's um, like there's certain goitrogenic saponins, which means that they inhibit thyroid activity okay. or there's like phytic acid or oxalic acid and those bind with minerals yeah. and um, or can prevent our, you know, there's like trypsin inhibitors, which inhibit our ability to digest protein. So those are all these different anti-nutrients that are in grains and seeds and nuts and sometimes in plant leaves too. Okay. So I want, I mean, I don't know too much about the different teas. I do think that in the same way that seeds can be toxic on some level, I think some leaves can be too, although cooking affects that too. Um, I don't know how much that varies in different types of teas. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know enough to say about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that it's not as simple as anything that falls in those categories is harmful. Yeah. Um, and, and with the honey thing too, just for what it's worth, it wouldn't really matter that much if you have the honey next to the tea or like a piece of fruit with it also. <laughs> just <laughs> eat it on the side. Don't, also don't put it in, just eat it on the side. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah, okay with that. that. We'll let that slide. The tea, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, that, yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, um, I mean, tea again. This is getting into the minutia of, of the details. I think there's a lot of a lot of good things with tea, and like for me, there's a lot of just like peace when it comes to like making a cup of tea, making a pot of tea, sharing it with friends, and just and I do like the the herbs that I use. Like I just the the green tea I drank today was it was like a gunpowder green tea with spearmint, peppermint, uh, go to cola, and rosemary, and it's like. A, one of my favorite blends that I just kind of made up myself and it's like a just a lot of good stuff it makes me feel just really kind of like a good afternoon focused type energy and so whether that's me just wanting to feel that way or not like I'm like that's, that's okay I'm okay with yeah, with yeah. it at the end of the day so um dude no cool I this has been awesome I don't know do you do you have much else that you want to add i mean we've been like two and a half hours this has been incredible i've yeah i'm probably gonna have to re-listen to this because so much good information here but is there stuff that you want to add anything else you want to talk about um i don't think so i think i think you know we we definitely took the time to dig into the most of the things we brought up i know i brought up some things and we didn't talk as much about so yeah you know i i, I mean I've, I've got some articles on my website and podcast episodes where some some of these topics if i know it's interested maybe i could take a look for for some of those where we read you know maybe went a little more in depth that wasn't um you know optimal for or appropriate for here but yeah um 
Yeah, but I know it, uh, it was fun. Thanks. Dude, no, so much fun. Yeah, and seriously, uh, can give give a little plug for where people can find um, your Instagram, website, podcast, and all that good stuff. Uh, yeah, so my podcast is called the Energy Balance Podcast. Um, there's over 60 episodes up there now, so a lot to, to check out. Uh, my website is jfeldmanwellness.com and jayfeldmanwellness.com. Mm-hmm. And my Instagram handle is JF Wellness, and that's just the letters JF and then wellness. Yeah, cool. And yeah, seriously, like I've listened to your podcast. There's, I think we could go on for like five more hours going into all these details, but you do such a good job on, on your podcast of digging even further into like c- certain compounds that we've talked about and like getting really deep into that minutia. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking even through some of the ones that I've listened to. There's definitely things we can talk about more, but I'm going to leave it there because this has been, like I said, this has been a really good, good use of time. I'm actually hungry myself (laughs) and just thinking about, (laughs) thinking about that. I'm like, I should probably eat. Um, And no, dude, so much fun. It was just, it was good catching up with you as well. Um, If I'm traveling in Central America, I got a contact now. Yeah, yeah, hit me up for sure. And if you ever for find sure. yourself back yeah, in the Midwest, um, I don't know why you would, but <laughs> hit me up, <laughs> hit me up as well. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me, man. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much to Jay for that enlightening conversation. Remember to check out his work at jfeldmanwellness.com. That's J-A-Y-F-E-L-D-M-A-N-Wellness.com or on social media at JF Wellness, that's the letter J-F Wellness, and even his podcast, The Energy Balance Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the show today. You are valued and appreciated. Check out Fresh Steeps on social media for more content and have a beautiful day. Peace and love.